The main discussion portion of this episode was recorded before the tragic death of Jason David Frank. Nate Marchand, Personal Journal. My morning wasn't good. But it never is when you walk into your office and Cowboy Carl is sitting on your desk, smoking a cigar. Uh, Mr. Gold? Howdy, Nate. Hope you don't mind me helping myself to some of these here cigars. I noticed they hadn't been smoked, which is a Shakespearean tragedy in and of itself. Then help yourself. I most certainly will. How are you doing this fine morning? A little more frazzled seeing someone else in my chair. You'll get it back here in a hot Texas minute. But first, I have a few questions. About what? Well, your producer. <laughs> what about him? It's come to Mr. Winter's attention that he found something interesting in that old flying saucer we gave him. Oh, really? Uh, you mean like the controller sunglasses? I bet those inspired the look of Jordi LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation. No, no, no. Something much prettier than that. Prettier, you say? Let me just save you the embarrassment of lying to me, Mr. Machan, because no good's gonna come of that. We know he found a Planet X lady in that ship and has been hiding her like a damn fool. I drop my laptop bag and reflexively rub my forehead with both hands. How... How did you find out? A cyberfly on the wall, of course. I realized then I was foolish to think the board, especially under winter, wouldn't maintain at least some of its surveillance state. So you know, why bother me with it? Because we can't figure out where Mr. Crane is hiding her. And you think I know? Well, you are his best friend on and off the air. You're not wrong. Which would disincline me to acquiesce your request. Mr. Gold leaned back in my chair and reached under the desk. <sighs> Let me take a load off here. Hold on just a moment. He placed his golden Colt Python revolver on the desk with the barrel pointed toward me. Now, Mr. Marchand, don't let this big boy job go to your head. It is never, ever smart to tell me no, especially if you don't want to get, well, fired. You wouldn't. Like Kenny Rogers sang, you gotta know when to hold them and when to fold them. Are you willing to take that gamble, Mr. Marchand? Our eyes locked in an unbreakable stardom for several forever long seconds. Took a slow drag on his cigar and let out a huge puff. Then he casually tapped on the pistol. Fine! Fine. He's... He's been keeping her in an empty closet in his quarters. Mr. Gold folded his hands on my desk. Well, bless your heart, Mr. Marchand. You did the right thing just now. That Planet X woman is a potential danger to the world, even though she is disconnected from her people. So what happens now? Well, that's for the Solstice lawyers to decide, but I assure you, hefty charges will be filed. You know the legal action team won't represent Solstice in this. <laughs> well, I can just about bet that Mr. Winter ain't worried about no legal action team. 
Then should I call Raymond Martin to represent me? No, no. Mr. Winter will press no charges against you, Mr. Marchand. His appreciation for your cooperation is more than enough. Even if it was under duress? Mr. Winter is a results man. So the means, however they may be, are of no concern to him. What about you? Well, I... As long as I'm paid, I am perfectly content. Right. Well, look at the time. You and I both are busier than the lovesick jackrabbit during mating season. So I guess now is when I will take my leave. Mr. Gold stood for my chair. Finally. Here, I kept the seat warm for you, Mr. Marchand. Snuffed a cigar in my empty Gamera shell ashtray and picked up his firearm. He opened its chamber. Hey, that thing's empty. Huh. Well, I guess it is. I must have used up all my ammo when I was at your producer's shooting range this morning. I guess I'll be ordering me a new batch of ammunition before I go on my much-needed vacation. Thinking about going over to Skull Island and hunting myself down a dinosaur. Assuming the people over at Jurassic Park haven't moved them all off-site. Dinosaurs are a little bit of a gray area when it comes to being classified as kaiju these days. Happy trails, Nate. Once he left, I plopped into my chair. And it was disgustingly warm. <sighs> what have I done? End journal entry. Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 74, Chris Cook versus Saban's Power Rangers 2017. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Monster Island's media master, Nate Marchand, and boy, what a day it's going to be here today. This is going to be one of not one, but two broadcasts that I am doing on this movie. Yeah, I know, Jimmy. It was serendipitous how it panned out like that, because... I also run a, this is a little bit of a spoiler for you. I also am the co-host of the power trip, a journey through the power Rangers franchise. And around the same time we got to this movie It's because today's movie I put on the schedule for this show. Well, before the power trip was a thing, but it's going to be a very different discussion compared to the power trip because I have with me today, the co-host of one cross radio, Radio Arcade and Power Bombs and Pile Drivers, the Power Fan 5000 himself, Chris Cook. Gentlemen, it is great to be here. It's been a hot minute since I've been able to join both you guys, Nathan and my boy Jimmy. Jimmy, I got a surprise for you, man. Most of the time I know you pick me up. <laughs> wow, he's interrupting you this time instead of me. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's that's cool. Jimmy and I, Jimmy and I, you don't know this. We freestyle on the side. We bonded over Wu Tang. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm one well of aware the, of that. <laughs> one of the times I came over, I'm pretty sure we blared and rapped along with "Protect Your Neck" the entire <laughs> way. But I wanted to surprise you, Nathan, because I knew you'd mm-hmm. appreciate it. But also Jimmy, because Jimmy is the technical marvel here, uh-huh. and he builds mechs and stuff. Now I didn't build a mech, but I did. We find and refurbish and use the rad bug to get what? Wait, 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 wait. Back this up. How many people have a rad bug now? Because I thought Michael had the rad bug. I guess uh, great minds think alike. My boy, Michael and I, I didn't know he was doing it. I guess he wanted that to be a surprise for me as well. But something power uh, us Power Ranger fans love is the stinking rad bug. It did not get used nearly enough, fell off the face of the earth. It somehow should have been in this movie. Like, tell me it wouldn't have been better with the rad bug. Of course it would be. <laughs> Everything's better with the rad bug. I, this, this just goes to show you that if poor Billy Cranston hadn't ended up going to Aquatar and he had been able to stay on earth, he would have been Elon Musk before Elon Musk. We would have had flying cars at this point. We would have had flying cars. We would have actually gotten a proper goodbye to Billy. He wouldn't have been so excited. He was speechless. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, uh, boy. The end of Zio. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. But Zio, Zio is dope. And, but, uh, I, I, and, but I'm glad you made it. <laughs> I, I am, too. I am, too. And you know what? It, just because it kind of segues a little bit. I did appreciate the, the minor Zio shout out that this movie that this movie gave you know what like it's it's one of the it's i've got a i'll say a complicated relationship with this movie (laughs) and we're gonna get into it yeah which by the way kaiju lovers we are talking about power rangers 2017 the movie specifically in all the excitement i forgot to mention that this is part of america america America, 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 America. America, I do. And now, back to the episode. Which is a little bit contentious. And I, I've had some people actually ask me, it's like, why did you put this on the schedule and not other things? And I'm like... Because at the time, I didn't know if I'd get another chance to talk about Power Rangers on this show. And then the power trip yeah. happened. And well, I, you know, and that's so why I'm talking a lot of Power Rangers and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie I have talked about three times <laughs> this year. Well, and, <laughs> and to give a peek behind the power curtain into the Morphin grid, I'm pretty sure you and I talked about, like, started our per- preliminary conversation about this almost a year ago. Yeah. Like, this was it was well before the power trip actually to the point that while the power trip was going on i was like i wonder if that episode is still going to happen because now you got the power trip but i it's like let's not bury the lead it's a movie that can spark discussion and it can be talked about on numerous spots there's a lot to learn from this movie good and bad mm-hmm. and it's like it it's a thing that happened 
And I know that's going to sound much more disparaging than I meant it, but it's also <laughs> not, it's it, sounds like, very it's, existential. <laughs> it, it, it's not a movie where I'm like, I hate it and I wish it never, ever happened. And blah, but it's one of those like, no, there's, there's a lot to talk. There's a lot to talk about with the movie because it, it's a movie that has to <laughs> Do you need a rant master? I have the rant masters ready. I, I, only, I have only, gifted only, rant masters to people outside of the power trip before. I, I think I'll need it at one point and it'll be for a short one, but it, it was the first time I watched the movie. And then the second time I watched the movie, it's the thing that just ang like legit. I was just like, <laughs> like it just made me. Well, we'll, we'll talk about our history with the movie. Once we get to that discussion, I do want to mention that you talked about how this is a movie that can spark interesting discussions. Well, one of them will be today's Toku topic. We'll be tapping a little bit into your radio arcade energy today because it's going to be a little bit less me presenting research and more of a discussion, which is the type of Toku topic we haven't done in a while here on the Film Vault, which will be on representation in media because that has been a key facet of Power Rangers since it started back in 1993. And it's a huge facet of this film as well. In my opinion, that is the most accurate and best translation from something from the show to the big screen. Like it really captured that spirit of having representation, not just in terms of like racial diversity, but also all kind of diversity. There's a lot of representation in this. And it was something that was potentially going to inform some abandoned sequels to the oh, what, to this. Uh, when you listen to the Power Trip episode, you'll get to hear Michael, Jack Hudgens, and I theorize over what we think sequels to this movie should have looked like, or could have looked there, like, I should say. It's one of those things where it's like it's been heavily rumored, but never fully absolutely confirmed. But one potential idea was going to be Tommy in the sequel being being a woman spelt with like Tommy with an I. T-O-M-I. Yeah. Instead. Yeah. Where I'm like, you know what? That there's potential there, like with all things where I'm not going to judge it before I see it, where it's like, OK, this could end up being really, really bad or could end up being interesting. Right. But I also understand why we never got to the never got any sequels to this yeah. as well. Which is something that you'll get some hints at in the entertaining info dump that has been written by my intrepid producer over there. I am no longer contractually obligated to read them. It's just MIFE tradition at this point. So you know, <laughs> might as well get all the preliminary stuff out of the way so we can just zero in on talking about the film itself. Delio. All right. And with that, let's go to the entertaining info dump. Jason Lee, a.k.a. Red Ranger, is Angel Grove High's angry but moral quarterback turned delinquent, who becomes the stalwart leader of the Ranger team after realizing the magnitude of the threat facing Earth. 
The guilt-ridden but kind Kimberly Hart, aka Pink Ranger, is a cheerleader who is seeking redemption after sharing a risque photo of a mean girl that was spread all over school. Billy Cranston, aka Blue Ranger, is a smart but awkward autistic boy who loves the idea of becoming a ranger because, among other things, it'll help him make friends. The antisocial and secretive Trini Kwan, aka Yellow Ranger, is dragged on this adventure after accidentally meeting the other characters, but as time goes on, she befriends them and opens up to them. Zack Taylor, aka Black Ranger, is a daring and often hot-headed young man who, like Trini, meets the other characters by accident and tags along because he wants a break from caring for his ailing mother. The harsh and zealous Zordon is an alien warrior now confined to a computer who trains the rangers so he can gather enough energy to restore his body and defeat Rita. Alpha 5 is his loyal and comical robot assistant who helps facilitate the training on Zordon's behalf. The ruthless and cruel Rita Repulsa is Zordon's former fellow ranger who betrayed their team eons ago and now seeks absolute power by acquiring the famed Zeo Crystal. The kaiju in this film is Rita's monstrous minion, Goldar. An obedient and protective being, she fashions with liquid gold using her preternatural powers. He serves as an extension of Rita, destroying Angel Grove and battling the ranger so he can acquire the Zeo Crystal. The Megazord is a giant robot formed when the ranger's individual zords, a T-Rex, Mastodon, Sabertooth Tiger, Triceratops, and Pterodactyl, combine together when they confess their love for each other near death. It becomes an extension of them as a team so they can fight Goldar. The human and kaiju plotlines are separate until toward the third act of the film, and once Rita determines to resurrect slash create Goldar, the plotlines slowly become more unified and culminate in the climax. Before then, the story is focused on the teenagers with attitude and their stories. Goldar is the problem by virtue of being a minion of Rita, who is the true threat. In the Xenozoic era, Zordon hides five power coins and has Alpha call in a meteor strike to kill Rita after she betrays their team. This succeeds in plunging a nearly dead Rita to the bottom of the ocean, but kills Zordon and wipes out the dinosaurs. Millions of years later, Rita revives herself. Zordon trains the rangers to morph so he can regain his body and defeat her, but the training seems fruitless. Trini does, and the rangers fight Rita but are defeated. Billy reveals that the Zeo Crystal is buried under the Krispy Kreme, and Rita kills him. The rangers take Billy back to Zordon and plead he resurrect him, saying they would give their lives for him. This ignites the morphing grid, and Zordon sacrifices his chance to regain his body to save Billy. The rangers morph. They battle Rita's stone-like putties, destroying them, and summon their zords to fight Goldar and Angel Grove. But Goldar overpowers them and pushes them into a fiery pit. The problem is solved when, after confessing their love for each other, the ranger zords combine into the Megazord. They fight and kill Goldar and launch Rita into space with a massive backhand. Structurally, this is a simple hero's journey, but the script by John Gattens juggles multiple subplots for each character, although some are more prominent than others. These all interact with each other throughout and come together by the end of the film. The special effects were handled by Weta Workshop, who created the practical suits worn by the actors and the digital effects that brought Goldar and the Zords, among other things, to life. While such techniques were common by 2017, the CGI characters are well integrated thanks to Weta's trademark motion capture. It gives digital characters like Zordon and Alpha tremendous personality, which is also due to great performances by Brian Cranston and Bill Hader, respectively. 
The costumes, while well implemented, have designs that look more like Iron Man than Jew Ranger, which made them unappealing to Ranger fans. The same was true of the Zords, which sported weird design choices like six legs on the Mastodon. However, Goldar is a unique creature in that he consists of constantly undulating semi-liquid gold. The overall aesthetic is good by modern Hollywood standards, especially since practical effects are increasingly rare, but they aren't the most pleasing to audiences. This is a serious and often dark film, although it isn't a hopeless one, with a lot of gravity. With its transforming heroes, preternatural MacGuffins, and giant monsters slash robots, this is very much a science fantasy film. As a Power Ranger and superhero film, this took many risks. It dared to tackle serious subjects never before seen in its franchise, including the first on-screen LGBT Ranger in training. It also took itself far more seriously than most anything in its franchise before it and paced itself deliberately. The characters were radically reimagined from their original TV counterparts, making them more realistic. It departed from some of the lore established in the original show in many ways. Overall, it's the most experimental piece of Ranger media in the franchise up to this point. That being said, it reinforces the style of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie and the 2012 indie superhero film Chronicle. It reinforces the former with its characters and concept, and the latter with its tone and style, although it isn't a found footage film. There's also clear inspiration from the 1985 film The Breakfast Club, directed by John Hughes. Saban and Lionsgate intended the film to be a reboot of the original MMPR and to start a new Power Rangers movie franchise. Superhero films were at the peak of their popularity at the time, so it seemed like a smart move. As such, it was made to entertain Ranger fans and superhero fans, who ranged in age from children to middle-aged adults. Unfortunately, when released March 24, 2017, the film grossed $142.5 million worldwide against its $105 million budget, losing the studio $74 million when all expenses are factored in. It was ignored by most moviegoers, panned by critics, and rejected by most of the Ranger fandom. However, since then, it has been reevaluated by some. There are multiple forces at play in this film. Individuality and societal pressure/slash expectations clash often for several characters, including Trini and Billy, albeit for different reasons. Kimberly wrestles with her own guilt and wonders if it defines her or if she defines herself. Zordon secretly exploits the Rangers to regain his body, a revelation that puts him at odds with them when that's revealed. The Rangers often defy authority figures, such as their parents and teachers, to do what's right. Interpersonal conflict creates friction between the Rangers, who don't all like each other at first. Rita's lust for power threatens humanity's right to live. A plethora of themes are in this film. Self-sacrifice is displayed by Billy, who always wants to save his friends, and Zordon, who sacrifices his chance at regaining his body. The Rangers all learn to trust each other by sharing their secrets. Forgiveness is shown by Jason, who tells Kimberly, doing something bad doesn't make her a bad person. Rita's power lust ultimately becomes her undoing, but the most prominent theme is love. The Rangers grow to care for one another as friends, accepting each other, flaws and all. They even push each other to become better people. This culminates with the creation of the Megazord, which was born out of their love. It exemplifies a diverse group of people coming together with a shared goal of defeating evil. Evil. 
With that, it's time to tackle this controversial entry in Amerikaiju. All right, Chris, now that we've gotten all of the preliminary information out of the way, I think a good place to start would be with our personal histories with this particular film and perhaps how our attitudes toward it have changed if they have. I, yeah, I, I definitely think that's a, that's a fitting spot to start. I mean, we are talking about teenagers with attitudes, so mm-hmm. it, it's fitting. So I, I'm actually quite curious, sir. How has your attitude changed? What what was your experience like with this? Because I feel like it was very different than mine. Because at the time, like I was peripherally still involved with with Power Rangers, where I'd still be revisiting the old show, watching through RPM and a bunch of other things. So I got excited around the time of the movie. But I know that wasn't your experience. No, I I was actually one of the apparently few people. <laughs> who saw it in a movie theater. And I remember it very distinctly because it was after a long night of recording in my previous podcast life. So it was really late at night. And I just, I saw that there was a theater that was playing it uh, at like, I don't know, nine 30, 10 o'clock at night. And I figured why not? It's, you know, it's adjacent enough (laughs) to Kaiju. So I'll go check it out. And Keep in mind, I had not really partaken of anything Power Rangers in years, and my initial reaction to it was relatively indifferent. I was just like, eh, okay, fair. it's not bad. I wouldn't call it great, but it's not bad. And then as time went on and I started getting more and more involved with Kai- the Kaiju and Tokusatsu fandoms, and then also in part because of the power trip, in large part because of the power trip, actually, diving more into the Power Rangers franchise when I got around to watching it again for this podcast and the power trip my attitude was much warmer I actually found myself really liking it right I I, and I remember you you sharing that with me and I was in a way happy for you Mm -hmm. (laughs) just because so I remember first time I saw this and I've seen it I've seen it twice first time i saw it i was like you know what that was it was okay then after the movie that i was sitting on it aside from a couple things which later i'll activate rant master for (laughs) there was aside from a couple things i was like you know what yeah that was all right that was that was okay but then as i sat on it afterwards and then especially the second time i saw it i more lukewarm on the movie now like i'll I'll never say it's i i wouldn't call it a bad movie and i wouldn't say it's terrible by any stretch i didn't have like a visceral negative reaction to it like i did that the parody power slash oh power rangers unauthorized yeah uh, the Power Rangers on Authorized, where I get, like, even though, and you guys had a great conversation about it on the Power Giant Trip. Violence. Yeah, where it's like, it was a parody of that, but then I also had other, I had actual friends being like, oh, this is what Power Rangers should be. I'm like, no, it shouldn't. <laughs> but as I was revisiting it, I was, it's still, uh, it's an uneven film. It's a really mm-hmm. uneven film. And in many ways, it reminds me of an early 2000s comic book movie. Mm. 
Like, I wouldn't say early 2000 comic book movies were necessarily embarrassed by what they were coming from, but they weren't, like, grabbing on and running with some of their original tropes or stuff from the comics that, like, they do now. Like, you wouldn't get Spider-Man far from, uh, like, any of the Marvel Spider-Man movies back in early 2000. Uh, you or you mean the, the ones with Tom Holland? Yeah. Okay. Or even something like The Batman. Like, which, while different than comic book Batman, still has a lot from comic book Batman. It still would be very similar to, like, the the earlier ones. This movie, at points, I was like, we don't need to be go going so different with the suits, especially with the helmets being, back, like, back too far. Your whole thing is you're wanting you're wanting to embrace the nostalgia, but you're keeping it well more than an arm's length away. And... I don't know that that it took me out of the movie. It's going for a bit of Power Rangers meets Breakfast Club, which mm -hmm. on its face should be dope. But it, I never felt it reconciled where it, it embraced the the campy, the campy fun nature of the show as much as it should have. And it's it's it, it's a divided movie for me. I hope mm -hmm. I'm making sense. You are. And those are all things that you know, Michael's probably going to get name dropped a lot in this, but that is something that those are the sorts of things that Michael and I have talked about in private and in our lead up to covering it on the power trip. And I totally understand people when they're coming at it from those angles. I can tell you the thing that really did help turn it around for Michael and to a, a lesser extent turned me around on it. And that is the making of documentary on the Blu-ray. Have you been, have you seen that? No, no, I haven't yet. Watch that and then watch the movie again. I will be sharing some stuff from it because that was part of my research. But the documentary, it's, it's shown in multiple parts on the Blu-ray. It's two and a half hours long. And it goes into every facet of making the movie and has gobs and gobs of interviews. And Within about 20 minutes of watching it, I realized that contrary to what Michael originally thought, which was that basically this was the Godzilla 98 of Power Rangers made by people who didn't like Power Rangers, were embarrassed that they were making a Power Rangers movie or whatever. I watched that documentary and I found out everyone, or at least almost everyone who worked on this was a fan. I, I was going to say, I've heard that criticism and I can, I watching the movie, even with the issues I have with it, I never got the impression like, oh, it's a Godzilla 1998 situation where it's like, they're almost embarrassed that it's Power Rangers, but it was trying for me because you, or there was a lot of great organic references to the show. Like they, they made the Zeo crystal, they name dropped the Zeo crystal in like the first scene of the movie. Mm -hmm. And they had it within the same context that it was within the original show. Mm -hmm. Like that actually, that show was a love and care for it. Mm -hmm. But it was for me, it was just our Rangers can get serious. Like on the power trip, you and I and Michael have talked about RPM, but it mm -hmm. still has a balance with the camp. And I felt like it, the movie, not like it, it didn't embrace some of the, the lighter aspects of the show, the, mm -hmm. and the lighter aspects while balancing the serious that you can, that Power Rangers can do 
I found in the movie they just didn't hit that stride well enough. And when they were going for the nostalgic moments that they weren't working for me. Hmm. That's interesting because, and maybe it goes back to, because the, you know, looking at the interviews from that documentary, but and listening to the commentary by the director and the screenwriter, who, by the way, the screenwriter on this is an Oscar nominated screenwriter guy knows his stuff. Dope. Mm -hmm. And they, all frequently did talk about the breakfast club which for those who don't know the breakfast club was a john hughes movie probably his most famous movie uh, it it's was a like teen drama the, from the 80s and it's, like it's a quintessential teen movie yeah especially well not even just from the 80s just all time and it's about four Period. kids who meet in detention on a saturday afternoon they none of them know who each other are and it's just them hanging out getting into a few shenanigans and they become friends and, and that, that, that as a premise makes sense. Uh, like that works for the idea, at least the setup for how all these kids meet each other in school. That, that worked. That made sense. I, I liked that setup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, although I do think that puts some people off on it, and I think that's partly because a part of the camp, so to speak, of the original show is that those are very idealized teenagers. <laughs> They are incredibly idealized teenagers. And in this movie, they're not. They're all, with the exception of maybe Billy, none of them yeah. are, all of them are far from perfect. They're all there because they got in trouble. The only one, like I said, who seems kind of innocent is Billy because he basically accidentally blew something up in the school and ended up in detention with the rest of them. And I think there's... I think there's a fine line with it as well with with Rangers where and I'm not saying it went too far. It was just it's again, my personal feeling. They didn't narrow down the tone balance exactly well. It was too Breakfast Clubby, where if you've seen Breakfast Breakfast Club, you know what I'm talking about at parts where it's like, no, these are 90s teenagers or 80s teenagers. And it was fairly accurate. It's still some of those things where I'm like. I don't know if, uh, like, yeah, having somebody be a bully or doing something bad like that, I'm fine with. But it's also like, yeah, but they they shared someone's nude or something where I'm like, yeah, that's that's a big deal. That um, it is. It is. A, it's a is. And... A, not that you can't come back from that, but I'm like. That's a rough place to start, and they don't do too much with it either. So it's just kind of like, ah, oh, that's I, I'm not sure if that should be here. If you get what I'm going well, for. Well, let me tell you, in a pre in an earlier draft of the script, it was actually worse. Yeah, in and an earlier where... draft of the script, because you're talking about Kimberly, the Pink yeah. Ranger. In yeah. in this, what she gets in trouble for is. One of the mean girls, you want to talk about uh, referencing another teen drama high school movie, you know, Mean Girls. Which is also dope, though. Let's, yeah. let's not kid ourselves. Mean yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing. But in the movie as is, she was sent the nude by the nude photo by one of the mean girls. And then because Kim doesn't like her, she sent it to other people. And then it basically went viral with everybody right. in the school. And that's why she's in detention. Right. In the original draft of the script, she was the one who took the picture and then sent it out. So it was 
originally a lot more spiteful. In her case, it was she was sent it and she had the choice and she made the choice to send it out when she had the option not to. Yeah. But she herself did not take the picture. So it does actually put some blame onto the mean girl, which I think is appropriate because when we're, when we meet those two characters, they are not likable or nice. No. And it, it's, I don't know. It was one of those things where for me, I'm like, you don't have to be like everybody hyper idealized, like the OG show where the teenagers are doing like 30,000 things involving community service mm-hmm. and, and somehow getting straight A's where you're like, yo, this doesn't make any sense. None of this is realistic. But for me, it was almost like the bridge too far kind of thing where I'm like, I don't know if that has its place here. Especially as I felt they didn't really address it too much. And it's like those kind of things are awkward and and uncomfortable and wrong. They are, but I think that was the point. And Kim yeah. thinks that like the whole movie, even though they don't, they only focus in on it a couple of times. Kim spends the whole movie thinking she's a monster. She hates That's herself fair. for what she did. And there's a scene in the movie where they do call it out. She's talking with Jason oh, yeah. and, and Jason says, just because you did an awful thing doesn't mean you're an awful person. And she's like, yeah, but I can't come back from that. It's like, who cares? Just delete, the, you know delete. Oh no. He says, delete the picture. And she says, but I can't just, you know, basically says like, even if I delete it, I can't make this go away. It's like, doesn't matter. You're, you know, just because you did an awful thing doesn't mean you're an awful person. Because right, and, and she I, I, I initially went back. to him I'm because wrong. she said, "I think it's my fault we can't morph." Because that was how the director actually initially pitched the movie when he right. got the job, which is this is the Power Rangers movie where the Rangers can't morph. Okay, you know what? I'll 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 walk that back. I stand corrected. Dude, I forgot about that scene. <laughs> yeah, so it becomes a thing, and they have to and they have to talk about it because. And she, like I said, she blames herself. Everybody in this movie has some form of baggage. Like I said, the only oh, yeah. one who's even close to good is Billy. But Billy still got himself into trouble because he doesn't understand how things work because he's on the spectrum, which was a big deal when that happened. They just say he's on the spectrum, but I'm guessing he's probably supposed to have Asperger's. That would be my guess. I found that interesting because. I remember when the movie came out, people were saying, hey, this is the first autistic superhero. If you go by movie, sure. I do think that, yeah. which, you know, there was another big first in this that people talked up a lot, but we'll, you know, we'll get to that in a little bit, I'm sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking about Zach not doing hip hop keto, right? <laughs> you know let's let's park there for a minute i mean I, well no let's talk about billy as he is in this movie first now as someone who has a younger brother who is autistic i actually found this very interesting and i'm very glad that this is as respectful a portrayal as it is and honestly aside from the fact that they you know billy does explain it to jason at the beginning and, you know, he says, Hey, I'm on the spectrum. I don't under, I don't understand social cues. I don't, you know, my brain doesn't work the same and all that. And then it never gets brought up again. Billy is just Billy and yeah, he's weird. And we have to 
work around it, but eventually they just get used to it. And then Billy becomes probably the most endearing character in the entire movie. Like even people who hate this movie like Billy. Oh yeah, no, Billy is the runaway character of this, of this movie. And I would say like, this was coming out of, at a time now I'm, I'm not on the spectrum by any means and I don't have any relatives, but I've known people who have been. And a lot of them were like, no, this is, this is like actually respectful. This is well done. It wasn't as much as I love community. It wasn't an Abed Sheldon version of on the spectrum mm-hmm. or in the worst case, it wasn't like a, a thing from like Shane Black's the predator where it's like, no, this is a superpower and all that where it was actually handled really well and respectfully. And the performer was very endearing. RJ um, Tyler. Yeah. I think he stole the show. He might not be my favorite performance, but he is the best performance in the whole movie. Hands down. Mm-hmm. He was one of the most enthusiastic actors in the cast. If you watch the interviews with him, he's like, I get to be a power ranger. I love power rangers. Like he's an actual fan. And he was just yeah beside himself that he got to be in this movie <laughs> like he was intentionally trying to get himself into this movie when he knew it was going to happen like he was sending self takes <laughs> as auditions while he was working on another movie and sending it in to try to get into this one he really wanted to be on this and honestly i the whole cast of all five of these rangers they have such great chemistry together oh they do they they are so good together both on screen and off when you see them when in the behind the scenes footage working together, I'm just like, they are just so good together. And the way that the director would have them work and how he did the audition process, he treated this like it was an ensemble piece, which it is. And he wanted to make sure that he had a group of actors who were really good together. And honestly, if you look at the history of the power Rangers franchise, the best Ranger teams are the ones that got along the best off camera. Like, for example, Time Force, Power Rangers Time Force, that cast got along so well that for a hot minute they wanted to make a movie. And I wish they did. <laughs> and something that this, the best Power Rangers teams, and that, like, you could say that, but then also in terms of the shows, and I think it's something that we brought up when we were talking RPM on Power Trip, but also you and Michael have brought it up numerous times, is when it's everybody's in mind it's not like mystic force starring nick guest starring the mystic (laughs) force rangers or as everybody like it's a joke i've made where no offense to like no offense to mr jdf but at the time the show did become it it's the case of the the original movie as well where it became like the power uh, Tommy Oliver guest starring the Power Rangers like this one, even though, yes, you had Jason as the leader of the team. It was very much an ensemble and it wasn't just Jason, the only character. And then everybody else gets bits, bits and pieces. Now, we especially no, actually, I, th- I would say through a good portion of the movie, he is. He's kind of the audience surrogate because as he learns more about everything, the audience is learning. He's the oh, first yeah. ranger we see and then he's the one that we kind of who learns things with the rest of the of the team as the movie progresses and we kind of learn with him. So I, I do think we're meant to uh, the audience is meant to kind of latch on to him at least initially. Oh, a thousand percent. And then it slowly starts to expand and I like Jason in this. They're the way that they handle him 
you find out that there's a reason why he's the team leader and he's the Red Ranger. They tweaked him a bit from the original show where he's the star quarterback. So he has natural leadership skills because he's in a position of leadership, but he also tends to do things himself, but that's all done yeah. very subtly. And I really like that. It's a lot of things that Dean Israelite, the director mentioned numerous times in all the, those special features that, yeah, he knew he was making a tentpole superhero movie, but there were points where he would intentionally subvert things. And I kind of wonder if that was part of why we'll say the non-Ranger fans just didn't latch onto it because it wasn't, um, you know, the Marvel formula. You know, they had been trained to expect the Marvel formula. And if you diverge from the Marvel formula, they may not like it. I, I'm curious as to, like, for me, I know, like, my main reason, as I've said, and I'm not trying to beat that drum, is that I found it didn't hit the proper tone, at least for me, for what I was hoping from the movie. I'm curious as to what non-Ranger fans going in don't enjoy the movie because it's uh, what they don't enjoy about it. Aside from the, it's not Dunkin' Donuts, but it's the donut Krispy Kreme. Hey, there we go. Yeah, the Krispy Kreme of it all. <laughs> like that part. Uh, like I think there's, I think there's a lot of stuff where it might be alienating to hardcore ranger fans or even lenient ranger fans there's still enough stuff where it might be like uh this is almost like the first season of a show where like okay you, there's there's promise here but the second season is where you're going to figure out the best like what you are and how you're going to iron it out right and that's why i would have loved for a sequel to this to, to happen even though i wasn't that huge on it because there's a lot of promise there and there's a lot right. of good stuff there. Mm -hmm. I just found it didn't all coalesce in the original thing. What's the guy's name who played Jason? Dacker Montgomery. Dude was awesome as Jason. Now, my joke was going to be because I saw I think this came out right after season two of Stranger Things or right before. He's in Stranger Things. I forgot he was in Stranger Things. Well, uh, but he has like, a mullet thought, in Stranger Things. Well, and he's like, and he's <laughs> like, who gets all the other people's moms hot to trot? Like, he's a beefcake in that. <laughs> he shows up in Power Rangers. I'm like, all right, everybody keep him, keep your mom away because Stranger Things tell me he's a hip with the older ladies. <laughs> but I thought I thought he was a terrific casting as Jason and J like Jason is like my favorite ranger and no offense to Austin St. John, but I'm like, hey, if you actually want a person who can have that leadership quality, but also really solid acting chops, this dude is it. That earlier scene where he puts not bulk and not skull in their place as they're <laughs> tormenting Billy. I was like, that's a great scene. That is, that's an outstanding scene. And his performance throughout the whole movie is, is really, really good. Oh uh, yeah. I would agree with you now to back up a little bit with some of the, with a couple things that you said. One, I used to think that the whole Krispy Kreme thing in this was crass product placement. Yes, Jimmy, I know you're, it's making you hungry for donuts. It's making me a little hungry for donuts too, actually, but I, <laughs> hungry for donuts and diabetes. Yeah. Uh, diabetes. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but I actually found out in the commentary because the screenwriter and Mr. Gaddis, I think is his name. And or is it Gattins? I think it's Gattins. Jimmy will probably correct me at some point. 
<laughs> whether it's now or in his blog. But they said, yeah, we, we heard people were like, yeah, what's with the product placement? It's all over the place. And they said that they did not initially do it for obvious product placement. They did it because they thought if the Zeo Crystal, the MacGuffin in this movie, has been sitting underground for 65 million years, they thought it would, and, and they've built Angel Grove on top of it. They said they thought it would just be funny because obviously things have changed in 65 million years. If it was under something that is completely unsuspecting and ubiquitous and nobody would think of, think it would be there. So they were sure. like, it could be under, you know, like a Starbucks or you know, something. And then they just settled on Krispy Kreme because no one would expect that. And then, yeah, by the byproduct is that they got some product placement from it, and that probably helped fund the movie. But that was it was originally done as as something creative and not as a business deal. <laughs> product placement is what it is. If it had been just like a generically made in universe donut shop, like it would have been like, oh, that's kind of funny, or just like a no name convenience store. Sure, like it's <laughs> where it's like, oh man. Crispy. They went hard on the Krispy Kreme. Yeah, aspect. yeah, but you, but you gotta admit the scene of of Elizabeth Banks, Rita Repulsa eating a donut while everything's being destroyed around her is actually really funny. Because I, I, I know where we talk about how it's not quite striking the right tone of the movie, and I get that for like mm. it's a two hour movie for the first ninety, and I timed it. And I've taken screenwriting classes, so I, I know it's hitting the beats that you would probably want to hit in a story like this. Like, they find the power coins around the 20-minute mark. That's the inciting incident. That's what screenwriting mm -hmm. classes will tell you. That's when you want that to happen. Right there. They meet Zordon and Alpha around the 40-minute mark. Billy is the first one to morph a little over an hour in, and then they all morph at the 90-minute mark. And then for the next 20 minutes, it's the freaking show after that. It's just balls to the wall. Crazy. Including Rita Repulsa eating a donut as all the Krispy Kreme around her is destroyed. It was funny. Yeah. It's so, and then the <laughs> other thing is, is I really do think, and we'll get to some more of the nitty gritty of the movie itself, but I am of the opinion, and maybe this is a hot take to some people. I am of the opinion that if this movie was able to get sequels, it would have retroactively made people appreciate this one more. I really think so, because I think it had a lot of potential if they had made sequels. And the people who worked on it said, we're making this for the fans. We are fans. We're anticipating that this is going to be a film franchise. Good Lord, they even interviewed Haim Saban, creator of Power Rangers. He was an executive producer on this, and they interviewed him, and he was confident that he had a film franchise with this. And then... It's so weird because it's like all these people were fans and they said, we're making this for fans. It's almost like you are, you're making a gift for somebody and you've gone to a lot of effort to make sure you got the right thing and you've wrapped it all up nice and pretty. And then you give it to the person and, but then the recipient just slaps it out of your hand and tells you that you're the worst person that they've ever seen. How dare you do that? I'm just Sorry, like George I, Lucas. <laughs> yeah, it, it, George it, it is Lucas. kind of the George Lucas syndrome here. Cause I'm like, I don't even want to think about being in the position of anybody who worked on this movie and putting so much heart and soul into it because you love the material to immediately be told you ruined my childhood. How dare you touch this? That's I, again, I don't understand that, that deep visceral reaction because let's make no mistake. It's a well-made movie. 
as much as I might not enjoy it because of tonal balances, guess what? That happens in other, like, more successful flicks. Like, this was easily the best theatrical Power Rangers movie. I might be more nostalgic for the 95 one, but this is made better. It could have learned some lessons in terms of embracing some of the zaniness from the OG show and the original 95 flick, but it's still better. That is better and more competently made than that. And especially the Turbo movie. Like, oh, we don't said, talk about Turbo. Anybody who Exactly, Jimmy. <laughs> like, to me, anybody who says, like, you ruined my childhood with this, it's like, that's that's bad faith. That's bad faith right. and an overreaction. This isn't even in the category as, ad ba- as bad as the the Michael Bay, the, the Dune, whatever, production Ninja Turtles movies. Like, this is... Platinum an, Dunes. Yeah, Platinum Dunes. Sorry. Like, this is an uneven flick with much room for improvement, but the bones are very, very strong. And mm. the moving pieces in it are great. You can see how it can improve and get better. And I absolutely agree with you that if this had further sequels to improve upon it, it you would it, you would appreciate the original film more. Mm-hmm. For weird Star Wars comparison, I'm going to even say, like, you appreciate A New Hope more when you get Empire and Jedi. Mm-hmm. I think you would have appreciated this movie more if it had the chance to continue. And anybody who's like, oh, this was awful or it ruined it. It's like there's been worse official, like worse Ranger franchise stuff on the big screen and on the small screen than this. Like, calm down. Right, right. I, and I guess Rampaster could have come out then. Uh, nah, <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't, I don't think that was, that didn't sound like a rant to me. Oh, there will be one coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, Jimmy agrees. That was a right, that wasn't right. quite rant master worthy. Right. You're right. Not 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 rant master. <laughs> when stoke, you when we get there, box. when we stoke get there, box. tell me to Moment. hit the button and I will hit the button. Oh, it, it it's coming. It'll be brief, but it it'll yeah. be here. Yeah. And I I've heard the objections that I've heard to this movie since we're on that subject honestly feel very surface level to me. Some people complained about the pacing. After watching the movie again, I thought Okay, if you wanted to make certain things like them morphing happen faster, it would require radical rewrites and restructuring. It would basically be a completely different story. Mm-hmm. Given what they were trying to do, because Haim Saban said, if we're going to make this a new franchise, we got to do an origin story. And maybe at this point, people were just sick of origin stories and superhero movies. That could be a part of the reason it didn't do well. And I understand that. But that doesn't mean origin stories themselves are bad. I don't mind the pacing. This time around when I watched it again, after I was invested in these characters and I followed them all the way up to when they get to be Power Rangers and when they get to be Power Rangers, that's a big moment and it's exciting. And I was there for it. So that didn't bother me because as someone I frequently cite on the power trip said, you know, said in his Power Ranger videos, the Disney brain, Power Rangers are people first. It's why I had such an issue with Megaforce because they're ta- they're b- taking costumes that were worn by characters who were much better than them and and then letting characters who are infinitely inferior wear them and trying to be like, "See, don't you like this?" like, "No." Because they're just wearing their clothes. So, yeah. 
the fact that I'm invested in these Rangers as characters first, I think was a very smart move. Otherwise, what I hear people complain about are the aesthetics. And I'm like, okay, fine. There's room to talk about that. Yeah, and the arachno mastodon looks silly. Okay, I get it. Jimmy and I have talked about this. That is the some of the robot designs in this are a little bit goofy. All right, a triceratops with six legs. Whatever, I get it. You know what? Actually, here, yeah. You know what? Now's the time. Rant master activated. Oh no! Rant master activated. That is, a, I get it that it's a nitpick, but for me, it's a huge thing for the movie. It took me out every single time I see it. Anytime I see a Triceratops with six legs or an arachnid mastodon, it actively pisses me off. It makes me angry. Uh, I'm just like, does nobody, I get it. We weren't alive at the time, but we've seen skeletons. We've seen artistic renderings of this. You can have license. You don't have to do what the original Zord was, but it's still got to be something that resembles the damn creature and it takes me out so much that I'm just like, all right, I don't like the new suits. The, I, the Zords are hit or miss, but those two things where I'm like, no, this doesn't match at all. It actually exacerbates the previous issues I have with some of the aesthetics, but it just takes it home. It goes from something where I'm like, I can compress it to something where I'm like, no, you're on in front of me. I can't ignore you. This looks stupid. You're pissing me off. Done. Do, 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 are you are you okay? Okay. Yep. Nope. I'm done. I'm done. Chris. Chris. Yeah. Michael didn't give yeah. me what I wanted on the power trip. You just gave me what I wanted. Thank you. <laughs> it makes me happy. <laughs> yes, Jimmy. I know it's a little sadistic, but get used to it anyway. <laughs> like I I I understand. I understand that aesthetics doesn't have to be the be all end all, but something with Power Rangers fruit. And it is an issue that I have with the movie. I don't like the suits that they went with. I think they could have right. leaned more to the classic, especially when part of the reason you're going to these movies, be they superhero or Power Rangers, which guess what? They're basically the same thing. Like you're going, well, they are. For, <laughs> you're going for the suit. It's something that you've been watching or reading since you were a child. And I want to actually see that on the big screen. I want to see it. I want to see it look good. And I don't need to see the actors handsome or pretty or gorgeous face, whatever you want to say every two seconds. I didn't like the look of the suits in the movie. I didn't like the visual aesthetics of it and visual aesthetics is a huge part of power rangers i, I understand and then when that we got I, to the zords especially those yeah two, I, I i get it and yeah it took the, me out the the zord designs are a little bit goofy i did like the t-rex i did uh, we don't get to see the saber tooth tiger enough no we don't i like that the pterodactyl is basically a space age jet fighter i'm cool with that yeah. The suits, I do want to park on the suits a little bit because there were there was a whole segment of the special features dedicated to the suits. The suits were made by Weta. They were designed by a group by a company called Legacy and they wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that they put in things from the original show. They are recognizable as the MMPR slash Jew Ranger suits. They have enough design elements in there that they're recognizable as such, which is more than I could say for Rita because they had to completely redesign Rita. 
and probably yeah. with good reason because I don't think they could make the ridiculous Wicked Witch of the West outfit work in <laughs> a movie like this. It's fine yeah, in the yeah. original show, but it's not going to work here, I don't think. Yeah, so, it, yeah but, no, it, it, yeah. even though the tone wasn't balanced, it would not work with the tone of this movie. Right. Now, here's the thing about those costumes. There's one thing. We can debate whether or not that they went too far with the Iron Man. Look, that's basically what it is. It's Power Rangers as Iron Man. Yeah. And uh, now, in concept, I'm not opposed to that. Even the the MMPR 95 movie went a, went more of a direction like that. It wasn't spandex and I wouldn't have wanted spandex in this. I don't think it would have worked. I would have, a, I would have been fine if the suits were closer to the 95 movie, not exactly like that, but I'm not looking for Iron Man, but something armory and still more vibrant. The colors were v- in a way too dark for me, not because of the tone of the movie, but just like, it's not bright. Like all the suits say what you will, even to varying degrees of shade, they all have a vibrancy. These were like in the shadow. Right. Which is, that's a thing in modern superhero movies. They mute the colors a bit because they don't think it's going to look good. There's a place for it. Like at times I like, I love me the Deadpool X force suit and the Wolverine X force suit. But I also love their OG costumes, or in the case of Wolverine, his brown and blue one and not the bright yellow. But you Mm -hmm. get what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that. But there is something that I have to give this film credit for with the costumes. They're practical. They're real. They're not CGI'd on. Those actors and those stunt performers were wearing real costumes. In a day and age where they will green screen everything, even when they really probably don't need to, looking at you, MCU, they d- they made real suits for this. They constructed those things. Right. There is, there, there is some special effects work on it, like the diamonds with the kind of swirling galaxy-looking thing in it. That was done with optical effects, obviously. But otherwise, those suits are real. I, I have to give credit where credit is due. Absolutely. <laughs> and I... Like, it's not like I hate the suits, but I think it was one of the earlier seasons with Rangers where you're like, it's going to be a pile of little things. Um, yeah. So, And that's the thing with this movie where it stops me from getting like all in on it. There is aspects I really enjoy, like the performances. Also, friggin Zordon in this movie is awesome. Oh, uh, Brian Cranston. Not. Yeah. Zordon. Awesome. Alpha. Awful. What Bill hit you hit you don't like Bill Hader as Alpha? I'm fine with Bill Hader. I just did not like what they did with Alpha. I don't he know he does look a little weird. <laughs> he, if, Alpha in this reminded me of the friggin' Wally knockoff from Megaforce, and I'm like, I want more like <laughs> bootleg a bootleg solar panel Alpha. This is and and this Tenso. Is one, this is this is where it's one of those Tenso. things where excuse me. I'm like, if you if you could I think you could have done more with Alpha to embrace more of the aspect from the show, where if you took that there's nothing wrong with the costume from the show, and if you make some different adjustments and 
Bill Hader can be awesome, but it's like also Alpha Alpha, unless he's gone evil and his evil extent <laughs> is going like <laughs> putting mustache on you. Like it's also he's not a sass factory, unless we're talking Alpha Six for some reason. Like oh no, <laughs> it's, it's, it was one of those things where I'm like I in a way I wanted something more from modern comic books where they'll embrace some of that stuff a lot more faithfully. I did want at times I wanted more faithfulness to the OG show or even the nineties, the, the 95 movie in this, I think it could have struck that a bit more. And that's, it's just stuff like that that takes me out a bit. Yeah. I understand with that, but getting Brian Cranston for this movie, that was a huge get. The man is, a tremendous actor who brought oh, yeah. incredible him and Elizabeth Banks, because the the younger actor said in the special features that working with Elizabeth Banks was making them have to up their game because, you know, but working with these high caliber actors like this and keep in mind, Brian Cranston was almost never on set. He was putting on makeup and doing green screen work for yeah. Zordon in this. And, you know, he does have connections to the franchise. His earliest acting gigs were doing dub work for Power Rangers back in the day. He voiced several of the Monsters of the Week. They named Billy after him. Uh Uh-huh. So he's got some connection. And, you know, this is fresh off of Breaking Bad. The guy is a big deal. So making him Zordon, I think, was actually a great choice. And I like the pinwall look for zordon i think that's actually cool that that's a good modernization because that was what the creators on this movie wanted to do it's like we love the original show but we want to update it a little bit i think it's the same attitude that carl dutton has with the audio dramas like i love the original show but i want to update it a little bit oh yeah i'm not trying to beat a dead horse it's i think there's ways you can do it more successfully zordon Mm -hmm. They they got a thousand like I would not change a single thing of what they did with Zordon in that movie. And it was also nice to have Billy, Cran- uh, sorry, Brian Cranston feature featured heavily in the marketing of a movie around this time and not die after 30 minutes. As much as <laughs> as much as I love the first legendary Godzilla movie, I'm oh, still going to throw that shade every once in a while. <laughs> we'll get to that. That is slated <laughs> to be covered on the show. We'll get to that. I have defenses of that decision. Doesn't oh, yeah, necessarily no, no. mean it wouldn't. It would have been the best decision. It, well, it, it and it but. was more so the marketing of the movie being different right. from the movie, which I understood right. why when I saw it. But it's also like, but damn, he's so good that I don't yeah. want to go. Right. Yeah. So you you even don't have an uh, an issue with how they not kind of they made Zordon less than perfect in this too, because he's kind of selfish at the beginning. He lies I, to the no, Rangers I, essentially and says, "Hey, I need you to morph so you can fight Rita." And, uh, but then they're like, well, we can't more. So like, okay, fine. Now you got to train, but it's all because he wants to use the energy off of them morphing to give himself a new body so that then he'll go fight Rita. I don't have a problem with that so much. I'm fine with characters being fallible. And I'm fine with characters having at times ulterior motives. Is his motive selfish? Absolutely. But he's also not trying to do it for like, just like, I'm going to get my body and then I'll take over the world. It's like, no, I got to do this bad. It might, I got to do this thing so I can get a body. Of course. Thank you, Jimmy. 
<laughs> like I got to do a thing to stop an evil. I'm fine with characters being fallible, even even. Like, it's something true in life. Our leaders are fallible. Our leaders will make mistakes, and our leaders will have motives that we don't understand. And they defined it well enough in the movie, and again, the performance from Cranston was good enough that I'm like, yeah, I'm here for it. If it was something they did with OG Zordon, it would be out of place. It wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It would be very, very strange. But from the, it's something where it made sense with the tone of the movie and Cranston's performance before that reveal informed the reveal. It didn't feel like it was out of left field. Right. I agree with you there. Now, even though I've said we need to go back to this, I do want to finish talking about some of the stuff with the Rangers. So one thing that they did in this is... As diverse as it is, they also do race swap some of the characters. And I'm not, I'm a little bit mixed on that. On one hand, it doesn't really change anything. Okay, so now, well, for one thing, Trini was originally going to be played by a Hispanic actress when they did the unaired pilot, but then that actress left and they recast her with Tui Trang, who was Vietnamese. Which is interesting because Trini is a Spanish name. It means Trinity. I looked this stuff up because Trini is a very uncommon name. <laughs> like the only yeah. time I have ever heard of anybody named this is this character. So that's, this, which is, so like I said, it's just a holdover from that. Funny enough, this Trini, even though she's Hispanic, even, and they never mention her last name in this movie, it is officially Quan, which is just odd. I don't know how to explain that, but. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Regardless, they made Zach, who in the original show was a black man, they made him Asian. And Billy, who was white, you know, date played by David Yost in the original show, he's now black. And I think that that goes back to this long-standing I'm just going to say controversy over the fact that they had a uh, Walter Jones, a black man was the Black Ranger. And I think that that was, they were still a little bit nervous about doing that. And then a year after that, we we had the Black Panther movie. And I think at that point, nobody would have cared, but I'm not sure anyone would have cared then. And Walter Jones and the people working on Power Rangers never even thought of that for about a dozen episodes. They're like, oh, wait. But then ever since then, with one exception, which was weirdly enough, one of the worst Power Rangers seasons ever, looking at you, Operation Overdrive, they have never done that again made the black had the black ranger be played by a black man or a black actor right it's a minor quibble that i have with this because ultimately it doesn't really matter and they do some things with the characters that i think makes up for it but what did you think of that i didn't have an issue with it to be honest just because one i knew it was gonna change at the very least i was like treat it later became a thing where the most common differentions and these differentions, I can words, is like starting season two onward, it would be like, hey, we if we have a Black Ranger, an Asian cast member, and a uh, African American or insert whatever term mm-hmm. because not everybody identifies with African American as the term. Mm-hmm actor on the show at the same time one might be the yellow ranger and the other the other would be the the black ranger and it would be like that swap that we got with johnny young bosch and then um oh, what's her name 
but from season two onwards karen ashley power ranger yeah thank you but uh, and then before the actress who took over in zeo Mm-hmm. who played tanya like i was expecting something like that where it's like yeah it was a it was an accidental happenstance at the time where we are now i'm like that's not gonna happen they're gonna do some changes and as long as like as long as it the characters are served well like it's not gonna bother me too much and it it, it was not a non-factor so the 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 swapping i was like i'm expecting it's it's gonna happen because mm-hmm. they even though it was innocent at the time, there's no way around it now where it would have been an issue. Like people would have taken umbrage with it and it wouldn't have been worth it. Like what's the hill to die on here? Right. So I, 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 I totally understand been, that. It would have just been easier. It, it was easier. And it was like, yeah, no, let's just work what they did. Like with the, the characters with the, what they did. I'm like, nah, it makes sense. Again, the guy playing Billy, I was like, the race didn't factor in and it was just no. a terrific job. Same thing with all the, like all the other characters. Zach definitely was the least developed of all the characters, but I mean, yeah. Well, the thing that's interesting about Zach and I found a video that talked about this is he's actually a, for lack of a better term, minority in the United States that doesn't get talked about very often. And that is the poor Asian because he lives in a trailer park. He has an ailing mother. We don't know what she is ailing her, but he's taking care of her. He's apparently the only family she has, and he's afraid of losing her. He's very afraid of losing her. And according to this video, it's like, that's a demographic that's actually growing. At least at the time when the video was made, which I think was a couple of years ago, like it had increased by 38% and people aren't talking about it because the stereotype is that if you're an Asian living in America, you must be really well off because you're yeah. super smart and you work really hard. Not realizing that there are Asian immigrants who are still living be- below the poverty line. And Zach is here showing that, Yeah, which I think that's, very interesting. So it's tackling an issue that not a lot of people talk about. Same thing with making Billy autistic. That's something you don't typically see in a superhero movie. And I think it was a smart move to go with. And we may as well talk about this now. And this was something that they were a little bit nervous about doing it. I especially, this was especially true when you listen to the commentary from the writer and the director. They talked about like when they got to the campfire scene, which is really the, the the heart of the movie, structurally. If you look at it, that's you know. And the director said, "This is my favorite scene in the movie, where they're just hanging around and they're just opening up to each other about everything." And they very, su- uh, not very, but they subtly talk about Trini is bisexual. She acknowledges that fact and says that's hard for her to admit because her family is quote unquote so normal. She feels like an outcast and she's unwilling to open up to people because of that. And the director said that they were nervous about doing that because they knew it would be potentially controversial. And when they were editing that scene, they brought in representatives from both Lionsgate, who was the distributor of Power Rangers at the time, and at least for the movies, and representatives from Saban. And they had them watched the scene while they were editing it and they both gave their approvals. And the, I can't remember if it was the writer or the director said that one of their producers cried when that happened. 
Nice. It was actually like it was handled really, really well. Right. And the thing that I appreciate about it, because that was one of the things that people were latching onto. They're like, look, it's the first LGBT superhero. Well, the first one in a movie. Sure. <laughs> and <laughs> it's something that I felt like kind of got quickly forgotten with Dino Fury, where they had one of the Rangers come out as a lesbian. Yeah. And everyone was making a big deal about this. Like, did you forget about 2017 Treaty? Did you? Did you? But the thing I like about this is that it's something that she brings up subtly. It's acknowledged by the other characters, but then they just move on. It's just a detail because they have other problems to deal with. <laughs> They've got a crazy super villainous to deal with. And the real thing is that it's used as the reason why she feels so isolated and cut off like an outcast. Because that's really, that is the crux of Trini's baggage in this is that she's the outcast. I think this is a good segue uh, like we, we've already broached it i feel like this is a good segue for the into the toku topic oh well yeah i there, <laughs> I, I it would be it would be maybe we'll have to backtrack but I, there were a couple of other just little points i wanted to bring up related oh, no, more fair. to the aesthetics uh, like that, we talked about the individual fair. source what did you think of the megazord just really quick what did you think of the megazord i don't mind it i'm gonna say it underwhelmed me if anybody who's listening watches a uh, YouTube reviewer, Jeremy Johns, he'll do reviews of movies and he, where it'll be like at the end, it'll be like, I'm going to forget this in T a uh, T minus two minutes. And then it's like, yeah, I already forgot about it. And that sums up the Megazord for me in this movie. It didn't really leave an impression on me, which is, uh, which is a shame because a Megazord should leave an impression on you for good or for ill mm -hmm. talking about the 2015 movie or sorry the the 2000 the 1995 movie for ill it leaves an impression on you it <laughs> does it, it looks like a monstrosity it's horrible cgi right but then the best make like you can't say that about any of the OG shows Zords where the Ninja Megazord from Kaku Ranger looks dope. The original Dino Megazord looks dope. So it was very underwhelming and that was disappointing for me as well. Mm. It doesn't have to be a shot for shot recreation of the original, but I'm like, it should resemble it more and it should have that. Oh, awesome factor. And right. I'm like, I, it doesn't. And I honestly, I, I'm going to have to look up a picture of it. I can't remember what it looks like. <laughs> well, and that shouldn't I, be the case. I've heard some people <laughs> say that it looked too much like an Evangelion. I've heard people say that they can't figure out how it's how all the others are supposed to combine into it. And you want to know why? It's because it's not like Voltron or the original Zord, where each one just becomes a specific, you know, like two of them become legs and two of them become arms and right. things like that. No, it's like the Zords actually all come apart into many pieces and then combine back together. That's why you can't necessarily peg where everything right. goes. Okay, so now now I'm looking at it. This somewhat Optimus Prime knockoff. Yes. Yeah, no, I'm not. I, I don't dig it. I get what they were going for, but this is, I'll also say this is one of those like, look, man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like what was, what was there was working and that's where I think they could have leaned more into the nostalgia a bit and had it be that like right. this being like someone's evil zord or if the og megazord gets knocked out and this is the backup sure but that's the well as a salon i'm like ah it doesn't it 
it's one of those things where I'm like, it doesn't look Power Rangers-y enough for me. Ah, okay. I understand that. Now, I have a defense of the Megazord that's more thematic in nature. Something that we did talk about on the Power Trip. I'll bring it up in a minute here because I want to knock some other things out before we get there. I also want to talk at least for a few minutes about Elizabeth. We talked about all the other characters. Let's talk about Elizabeth Banks as Rita. That was actually one of Michael's biggest gripes with the movie before we watched it again. (laughs) How do you feel about Elizabeth Banks as Rita Repulsa in this? She is seen chewery good. She is, you can tell how much fun she's having. It's a different take on Rita. Don't, I don't hate it. Like, I, I I don't love it. I enjoy it. I still love the OG, like, OG take on Bandora. And actually, my favorite version of Rita is, I think, the one they came, they developed in the audio drama. Like, mm. that is, I think, the best version of Rita. And that's what live action Rita, especially if you're trying to do a more serious take, should be based on. I was fine with it. Her performance was fun. I know some people think she got too campy, but it's one of those where I'm like, it. Like, did you watch the original show? <laughs> well, yeah. And it's, it's I have a like, headache. This is. Uh, I'm like, this is campy where it works within within the movie. I mean, it, they still had her say the thing. Yeah, they they had her say the thing. <laughs> Make my monster grow, which we'll talk about the monster in a minute because this is a kaiju podcast. We need to talk about the monster, but yeah, the, uh, but yeah, I, I actually liked what she did uh, did there. She Elizabeth Banks really worked hard at this. Like they had a made up yeah, language, and she actually she put the effort in to learn it and get it down perfect. Like she had it memorized. She wasn't reading it off a script. She memorize the whole thing and she said that she grew up loving villains in tim burton movies so that was the kind of thing she's she's much less wicked witch of the west and i feel like more like michelle pfeiffer catwoman where she's kind of unhinged you know what yeah i like that That, and the other thing that that i i thought was interesting with her is that you'll notice the motif that they use a lot with rita is that they always associate her with death imagery and yeah. like when when they find her, she's a desiccated corpse underwater and they fish her up in, in a fishing trough and she's buried under a bunch of dead fish. And then she's barely able to revive herself. And what does she do to revive herself? She murders people and we see her eating meat. I think the implication is that she might have eaten her murder victims. So she is siphoning life off of other people to revive herself. I'm hoping it's not Jason's dad who was. No, he wasn't one of them. No, I I, I just can't remember. I'm doing this for Michael. It's just the name's escaping me. (laughs) Roy from the office. Right. Showing up in this, I was like, it's Roy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and I liked what they did with her there. The, The other, this is probably one of the biggest changes that they made to the lore, which by the way, was approved by Saban is we, they established that Zordon and Rita were past rangers and i'm fine with zordon being a past ranger i think that's totally cool yeah making rita a former specifically a green ranger that's a radical departure that is a very radical departure but i think it would have made a little bit more sense going forward in sequels 
Well, I, I like the idea of it because it's it at least sk- the show never really justified it. They made it work more on the audio drama. And even the great Boom Studios comics didn't do a great thing. It's just like with it where it's like Rita has the she has the dragon coin. But why? So it be, making sense of her being the original ranger, the original green ranger, if it sets that sequels up and you know you're going to do green with evil to a degree, those powers being tainted by her, if she was the person who had the coin, I'm like, nah, I'm fine with it. That makes sense. It mm-hmm. explains how she has yeah. the coin, how there will be that evil influence and the tie it will have to her, how she can have control over the powers and make a candle. <laughs> like, it can actually yeah. make sense. Yeah, yeah. And I, one of the things that Michael and I theorize about on the power trip, what they could have done is basically a movie too. If they made, say they made this a trilogy, there were two sequels. You can make mm. movie two basically just green with evil. And oh, yeah. so you introduce Tommy who, by the way, I've, I've met Tommy Oliver. He's a nice fella. And <laughs> th- although uh, there was an incident on the Island when he came to visit, someone crashed the little <laughs> celebrate, you know, the little tribute party that the powers that be on the Island threw for him. <laughs> yes jimmy it's better safe for an off-air story <laughs> but we thought that what they could have done is you have tommy oliver we'll make him the good kid with a chip on his shoulder mm-hmm. you know he's full of righteous indignation he so he has we'll say he has a tendency to pick fights because he's trying to help kids out but he's kind of violent you know that's the chip he has on his shoulder he finds the lost green coin because after <laughs> in one of the zaniest parts of the movie, Rita gets backhanded by the Megasword and launched into space. I know all about getting launched into space. It's not fun. <laughs> but she did have the wand, which is the one thing that's recognizable. Her design is radically different from the show, but I don't think it would have worked. The crazy headdress oh, and, the, and the cone bra and everything, it just was not going to work. No, you know, I... And the fact that just... she, it's supposed to be a Green Ranger suit, but it's not complete. I think that shows that her evil is degrading the power coin. It's corrupting mm-hmm. the power coin. She can't fully activate her. Maybe she just chose to look like that. I don't know. I like to think that it's because she's been corrupting it with her very presence. But anyway, Tommy finds it and doesn't know what it is. And the coin, because it's been corrupted by Rita using it, latches onto Tommy and it brings out more of the chip that's on his shoulder. And he just runs around causing trouble. And then the Rangers have to deal with him. And then by the end of the movie, they save Tommy from the influence of the coin. And then we have a post credit stinger where someone finds Rita on the moon and said person, whoever it might've been, maybe like Scorpina or something name drops a certain Lord Zed and says that he's coming to get the Zeo crystal now. Yeah. Which is another thing. The Zeo crystal is is generated by planetary life force and Reed is trying to get it. So this kind of object of, you know, this being powered by death is trying to get the thing that brings life so she can exploit it again, providing a contrast and Rita is kind of a devil figure. She betrayed Zordon and the rest of her ranger team killed them all because she wanted more power. Yeah. It's like, it's like all the archetypes are there to make it work. (laughs) Yeah. So I like what they did with her. I didn't have really any issues with, with Rita so much just because the tone of the movie imbalanced as it was justified 
like the it made sense with the character, much like the characterization of Zordon in this one being a bit more uh, jerkish and standoffish. Mm-hmm. It worked with this and Rita being this different made sense with it. Like it's still not my favorite version, but I like what Elizabeth Banks did with the role. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind the visual of it. Like mm-hmm. the aesthetic being of almost like a ranger suit is pretty, is pretty dope. The wand is enough there. Yeah. And, uh, and the director let Elizabeth Banks actually improvise. Well, but he let a lot of people improvise. Like there are lines, like especially from RJ Kyler that are improvised. Like the, the one where they pay lip service to the fact that they did gender swap, not gender, but the, they race swapped a couple of the characters when they're all in the pool and they see their ranger colors. And Zach says, <laughs> I'm black. And, and then Billy's like, no, you're not. <laughs> that yeah, was improvised. Yeah. And, and that's a, uh, like the, that's the scene in the jewelry store. That. Yeah. The scene in the jewelry store with Rita when she's trying to find more gold because mm-hmm. we'll talk about it. The, when she takes the one piece of jewelry and sticks it in her mouth, that was improvised. That was just her feeling out the character. <laughs> she just did that uh, on set. Nobody knew she would do it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, we we got to a part where I think what, what also takes me out of the movie a bit is the third act. Like it is the the Goldar of it. Okay, we need to talk about. Okay, this is a kaiju podcast. We're going to talk about the kaiju. All right, this is the one kind of fanboy objection. I will admit I'm behind for what he is in this movie. Not Goldar is fine. He serves his purpose well in this movie. As an adaptation of the character from the original show, he's awful. <laughs> I, like, uh, and this is where earlier when I said this, the movie has shades of like 20, uh, like early 2000s comic book movies. Goldar is the biggest version of that, where it's just like, hey, we're going to put the name of something on it, even if it bears no resemblance to from what it came like Rita is drastically different, but the interpretation is enough there. And there's enough similar things where I'm like, you know what? No, even though it's a drastically different Rita, I still buy that. I'm watching Rita. This makes sense to me. The only reason this thing is called Goldar is it's big and gold. And it, it, it yeah. kind of has wings. Be- yeah. There's because no characterization of it, yeah. there's, it could have been literally anything mm-hmm. else and it should have been called something else. Mm-hmm. It takes me out of the movie. And it also weirdly reminds me of the awful 95 Megazord CG oh. one where I'm like, it, it bears a resemblance to me with it, where it gets the Falcon sword bit. I'm like, uh, oh, it does kind of actually, now that I think about it now, here's the, Okay. It could have been anything. I, I, I'm okay with Rita having matter manipulation powers and the fact that she's yeah. literally making him out of gold. And I like the fact that he looks like a walking, undulating humanoid pool, basically, of liquid gold. And I like the fact that he at least displays a little bit of personality. He saves Rita. Rita kind of treats him like he's a child. And, the, you know, so they kind of save each other. She merges with him, which was just weird even though it looked like that should just burn her skin off because he's molten <laughs> and all of these things. It's kind of like the, put- well, and same could be said about the putties in this, but they look less like guys in clay, like gray, gray spandex. spandex and more like 
actual golems, which is what they're called in Jew Rangers. They're called golems. So I'm fine with the fact that they look like they're more elemental in nature. I'm okay with that. The name's a little funny in that regard, but I'm okay well, with that. I guess, I guess my thing is why, why couldn't this just be like the next step of the golem or the putty? Except instead of, it's right. like, all right, you know what, screw it. Instead of that, I'm going to, like, I can use liquid gold and I can make it grow. Like, it just doesn't, it took me out where I'm like, this isn't Goldar. And it's right. like, I get, well, it, I get well, what, it, like, I get its point, but then it's also, it's Ivan Ooze with the, oh, me, the Mechanodrone thing or whatever, uh, the Endomorphicon. Oh, jeez. Like, <laughs> Ivan Ooze. It, it, it is the oh. 95 movie. It's the ninety-five movie oh, again, man. but without the uh, without the charm. <laughs> uh, I, I I mean I guess, but yeah. So like, there's some things that make sense, and the director said that they made him as radically different as they did because he said there's been a lot of creatures since the original show who are like Goldar, and they wanted to do something different. This might have been a case where trying to subvert expectations probably didn't work in their favor. Even though I think they could have made it work somehow, like. It sounds like Rita knows Goldar. Like she calls him a friend and things like that. So I'm kind of like, maybe you could have done something like there was an actual Goldar who was closer to what we had in the show. And maybe she like fused his life force to this. Like she could make the body out of the gold, but then she needed to breathe actual life into it. So she fused his life force into it. If there was something, something like that, then I, I then I would then I'd be more on board, and I get the reasoning uh, of their like uh, the intentions behind it. But just my takeaway then and still now is as I'm watching it, I'm just like, why is this thing called Goldar? Like it's it's Goldar in name only. If yeah. there was any criticism at all, where you could take like. 98 Godzilla and apply it, it would be with, with the Goldar piece. Right. Like uh, I said, where people for... used to call it Gino, like Godzilla in name only. Mm-hmm. That's the case with Goldar where I'm like, it didn't need to be called Goldar. It could have been called literally, it could have been called a super putty. Yeah. <laughs> or a, putty. A, a, yeah. Gold or a gold putty or something like that, where it, it just didn't need to be called that. And it took me out. Also, a minor complaint, but I'll still keep it, is the moment where they did the theme and it was the recycled theme from the 95 movie, I'm just like, why can't we just use the OG, the, the OG show theme? It deserve That needed to be. <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> let Michael live that down because when we talked about the 95 movie in the spring on the power trip, he, yeah. he said like, well, this the theme here is better than the 2017 movie. And I said, dude, it's the same thing. No, exactly. He didn't I, believe I, me. Then we had to pause I, the recording. He went and watched the clip, and that. then he's like, I you were right. <laughs> no, I remember that, because I was like, all right, yeah, it's fine. It's fun. It was probably cheaper. But I'm like, if any... It, no, actually, the, things- the, the composer uh, for the movie actually did make his own little version of it. If you oh, listen okay. to the soundtrack, that piece of music for that scene, you'll hear his version of it, but then... In post production, they said, "Let's see what happens if we put the '95 theme and the '95 movie theme in there." It well, resonated it, with everyone so well. They're like, "Yeah, we'll just leave it in there. It's a little homage." <laughs> I would have loved it if it was the original show's theme. Like that is begging to be on the big screen, and it's there's room for that kind of nostalgia. And I think well, it would work. like at Trek 09, Trek 09, yeah. Michael Giacomini, amazing, Giacchino. like who's 
uh, Giacchino, who's just outstanding. But like, even in the post credits, when he adapts the original show's theme, you're just like, freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh. and the funny thing is the that shot of all the Zords running to the rescue while they're playing that theme song, that looks straight out of the show. And the director said mm-hmm. that was a happy accident. He wasn't trying to do that. It just happened. <laughs> I get it that it's a surface complaint, but it would have it would have there was so many like as the running where I'm like, uh, six and eight legs, like what the hell? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally to overlook it if I was rocking out to the OG Ron Wasserman masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I said, I totally understand. I get it. Goldar, not Goldar. Not Goldar. Yeah, we have nope. to make a distinction here. Not Goldar. It he's is, not. Uh, a, it, he's not Goldar. He is the. Uh, what was it that? Because I sent you a Michael the meme where I saw like dollar store brand Power Rangers where it was like uh, Power Warriors or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> this is Power Warriors brand Goldar. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just. I was just going to say he is not on the island. I don't know how they would have made that not Goldar work on the island, but he's not on the island, and I don't think anyone's trying to find him anytime soon. Good. Good. I don't want him here. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I didn't want yeah. him in the movie and I don't want him here. I mean, th- th- there's some potentially horrifying aspects to him. I mean, he's kind of like Hadora, but not quite as horrifying. Although if anyone wanted to find out how to do a modern day hetera with CGI, you might look here because I like how he looks like he's undulating and moving all the time. So Thanks. I th- it's one of those things where if if it had a different name, I'd probably be more okay with it. <laughs> it's yeah, just, it's it's that is it, it, it. It's just the hurdle is there for me where I'm like, but this isn't this character, and it's so much so where it I, it just annoys me. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I'm like, I can't I can't get past it. I right. I I actively it propels me away from it and then i'm just like it leaves such a bitter like discount gold taste in my mouth (laughs) (laughs) should we call him fool's goldar fool's goldar or what it's like a copper dar it's like copper dar uh, not as good. Involved, involved. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> you, get, you get what I'm going for, where I'm just like, or it's almost like sterling silver, where you think you're getting something silver, and then it leaves like a just gray rash on your neck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now That's this Goldar. <laughs> yeah. Now there is one more thing, I, and I feel like I would be remiss. There's a lot we could talk about with this movie. As I told you before the broadcast, I have about ten pages of notes on this thing, and I know I'm not going to get to all of them. But I wanted to at least discuss briefly, even though Jimmy brought this up in his entertaining info dump, as you know, on the power trip, one of our big things, we have thematic discussions where a lot of substance comes from in the power trip. And obviously you haven't heard the power trip episode yet, but thanks to our friend, Jack Hudgens, G man, as we like to call him, our theme for this movie was love. And I don't mean like romantic love. No, we're, we're, we're talking about love in general because Jack, and I think Jack makes a very reasonable argument that that's the theme of this movie because it is through acts of love that the Rangers make progress towards becoming Rangers. You know, they can't morph 
because they aren't gelling as a team because they're not caring for each other. And who's the first ranger to morph? It's Billy performing an act of love. He's trying to stop a fight between our two alpha dogs on this team, Zach and Jason, because they get into some fisticuffs. And he's trying to be the peacekeeper here because he doesn't want it because he Billy has trouble connecting with people. He wants friends. And, you know, and we have this wonderful improvised line from Billy, thanks to RJ Kyler, where he gets the ankle bracelet off of Jason and then Jason hugs him and he says, will you stop touching me now? And then later on, he gets hugged after he gets brought back from the dead because Rita kills him. (laughs) <laughs> and and then everyone's hugging him and he doesn't care because he's connected with everybody mm-hmm. and then it's because of that when they all say i trade my life for billy to bring billy back and then zordon makes a sacrifice by letting the energy that through the morphing grid that would have given him a new body he uses it to bring billy back so it's all of these acts of love and then the rangers are able to morph and then we get the final battle and not Goldar say what you want about him, but he's shoving the Rangers in their swords into the Zeo pit to get to the Zeo crystal. And they're all saying things to each other. Cause at this point they have gelled as a team. They have learned, they never knew each other before this. And they have all become friends because of everything that they've been through and because they have been encouraging one another. And they're all saying things to each other. Like no one dies alone. Thank you for being my friends and hold on to each other. And then they get shoved into the pit. And that's when they all combine together kind of magically, admittedly into the Megazord. And then they have their big dang hero moment where they come up with the Megazord and proceed to beat the snot out of Goldar going so far as to suplex him. <laughs> There's your power bombs and pile drivers reference for you right there. Suplexing Goldar. <laughs> that sounds like a good title, actually. Suplexing Goldar. <laughs> That's some of his memoirs right there. Yeah, suplexing. Oh, right there. That's the memoir for this team. <laughs> suplexing yep. Goldar. The story like of power uh, of the Power all. Rangers. <laughs> their, their tell-all book. Yeah, their tell-all <laughs> book. I'm sure it's somewhere out there. <laughs> well, I'll ghostwrite it for them if they want me to. <laughs> the real nitty gritty of Zordon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But and we, and we spent a lot of time unpacking that. The Rangers with the campfire scene illustrates this. They learn to love each other despite all of their own shortcomings and all the things that they were afraid of. They're vulnerable and they say, "Hey, I'm afraid of this. Hey, this is my hang-up." And they learn to accept each other. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Really quick before we move on to the Toku topic. I think that's accurate. I think that's fair and legit to the movie. And even though I've got my gripes with it, like it's also earned like something that you can criticize the OG show for that you can't criticize this movie for is even though everybody does accept each other, they're not quickly like, oh, hey, we're best. We're now best buddy buddies and everything is awesome. Like (laughs) right off the bat, like it's. No, the friendship and the relationships are earned in this movie. Like, even though the original show, like you were coming in on the point where they're already friends, this one, be be it because it's the origin or not, like, even though they became friends quickly, they still grew together and it was actual love and sacrifice and flawed people getting to that point. I think it's 100% accurate. Right. And Jack, I think, brought up an interesting point about that because he does have some aesthetic gripes with this film as well. 
But he makes the argument that this movie understands. Yeah, but he makes the argument that despite those missteps with the aesthetics, and there's room to, to debate those choices. He argues that this movie gets the heart of Power Rangers right, which is that whole aspect of all of these people coming together. Very, they're very different people. And, you know, as that, this one YouTube video I pointed out, they're in very different mechas, some of which aren't dinosaurs. Some of them look absolutely ridiculous. And in this moment where they say, we all love each other, they combine together and these robots that were meant to emulate what at the time were the most powerful creatures on Earth, they all combine together into what is now the most powerful creature on Earth, and that's a human being. And I think there's something beautiful about that. It's a lesson that I think we can all stand to learn. Hmm. It might be too generous to humans for my liking. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but, the, but the whole concept of putting aside yeah. differences and coming together. Yeah. I think you still could have done that with it still resembling something more magical and like the OG Megazord. But I get the intentionality there. Right. Right. And with that... I think that's also a decent segue, I think, to get into the Toku topic. <laughs> Indeed. <sighs> the finale of the Power Trip is done. What a year it's been. Nearly 1,000 episodes of Power Rangers and three movies. As accomplished as I feel right now, I am exhausted. Now, the only thing left to do is send this audio off to Nathan so he can... Hey, Michael! Oh, well, speaking of blue wigs and black leather, there he is. Oh, which is still better than nostalgia and corsets, but we don't talk about Turbo. Hmm. Marchand, I just finished editing the finale. Are you happy? Oh, very much, and now I can't wait for season two! What, 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 huh? We're, we're not doing a season... Hold it right there, young man! Jaden H. Christ, Ninjor? What the JDF are you doing here? Language, my dear fellow, and ah, yes, Ninjor, that was the name. You can call me the Great Ninja Man, and I'm here to say, you can't quit yet. You power nerds have a new mission, to talk about Super Sentai! Whoa, but, but that's almost 50 seasons of television. Stop making me so angry! You just need to cover one series a month instead of two. Besides, you have Once and Always and Cosmic Fury to cover for Power Rangers' 30th anniversary. Not to mention Legend of the White Dragon in honor of Jason David Frank. Do it for your hero, Michael. Fine. Fine, fine, but the listeners with Attitude will expect two episodes a month. What are we going to do when we don't have any Ranger content to talk about? Simple. We do shorter episodes on Power Ranger comics. Our fans have been requesting that for months. That's true, and it could be fun. Then it's settled. You launch Taisaku Sentai Pod Ranger in January 2023. You'll kick off your comics coverage with Going Green on the 17th, then your Sentai discussions start on the 31st with Hugh Ranger and end in December with Abba Ranger. And who knows, Michael? Maybe we'll go beyond that. Don't press your luck, Marchand. The power trip is making a U-turn, baby. Just do me a favor, Ninja Man, and keep Rito off of my podcast. 
I make no promises! Right, Chris. So, like I said at the top of the show, this Toku topic is going to be a little different. We haven't done something like this in a while. It's going to be a little bit more of a discussion as opposed to me sharing research. No, Jimmy, you don't need to be a referee for this. Good lord, man. Jeez. If he's if he's not picking fights with the guests, he wants me to pick fights with the guests. Something. You need to see a psychologist, man. I'm just saying. The only hill I'll die on with this movie. <laughs> Is how how stupid <laughs> the multiple legs for the swords <laughs> that got me into a different atmosphere of ranting. It, it actually just it annoys the hell out of me. It's not to, it's not a sight of you I see very often. It's kind of no. I, I've only I've only seen it happen one other time, and that was on Henshin then, which is just kind most of, of the time. Most of the time, I'm I'm chill about some things, but that one, I'm like, evidently, it's a trigger for me where I'm just yeah, like, no, there's no justifying this. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway, so we're going to be talking about representation in media. And I do think, as I said, I do I think we'll have a little bit of disagreement on this in some ways, but I don't think we're going to disagree as much as I think we originally would have given a little bit of our conversation before we went on the air. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be my thesis on the matter. This is my starting point. Yes, Jimmy, I am a little bit nervous because I'm not 100% sure how the internet is going to react to this because the internet is a volatile place. <laughs> so many rage peddlers on every side of the aisle. <laughs> but yeah. my thesis is going to be, and pay attention to my word choice here, my thesis is representation in media is overvalued. It can't be the highest priority without compromising the story. And I intentionally use the word overvalued because I want to make sure people understand. I am not saying it is without value, not at all. But when it becomes the number one thing, it undermines storytelling. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what's your, th if you could boil down your view on the matter to you know, a little thesis statement, it's like being back in college, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if you could boil your take on the matter to a thesis statement we'll say what would it be it matters it shouldn't be the be all end all mm -hmm. it can't be the only thing about it right right and i think when you we talk about it in the context of this movie which is why i wanted to bring it up and i think this shows you how well this movie handles it because this is something that didn't dawn on me until I watched it again and then started doing my research. This movie is ridiculously diverse because to, to use the buzzword, there is only one straight white male in this movie, and that's Dacker Montgomery as Jason. Everybody else is not that. Kimberly is a white woman, although I found out that that actress is not Caucasian, so maybe that doesn't even... <laughs> Naomi Scott is her name. Maybe that doesn't even apply to her. Trini is a bisexual Hispanic girl. Zach is an is Asian. Billy is a black kid, and he's on the spectrum. 
it's like it runs the whole gamut. And yeah, you know, we didn't talk about Tommy and you know what we, they could have done with Tommy because I think you mentioned it before we went on the air. And we did talk about this a little bit on the power trip. The post credit scene in this movie hints at Tommy, but they don't actually show him. But it might have not even been a him. A couple of the actors said, hey, we think it'd be cool if Tommy was a girl. T-O-M-I, you know, that Tommy. But, you know, that was just the actors musing. We have no idea what would have come of that. But that could have been an interesting thing. I don't know if that would have been a bridge too far for a lot of Ranger fans. I would have been willing to at least give it a chance. But that's beside the point. And what? No, no, no. Please go on. No, I was just going to say, the reason I bring it up because that, like I said, is done so well, I didn't even think about it, which I think is how mm. ultimately is how you want to handle things like this. It should just be something that's baked into the cake. It's a detail and you just kind of move on from there. But the thing is, is this is something that's been baked into this franchise from the beginning. I've seen interviews with Haim Saban where he said, I wanted to have a diverse group of kids on this show, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, because that's what America looks like. And that makes sense for Haim Saban, because if you look into his background, he himself is an immigrant. He's an Israeli immigrant. He's really, you know, he's an American success story. He came with not a lot to his name and he built a business and he became successful. He worked by working really hard and making Power Rangers, which is part of that. So I understand how Saban, as a successful immigrant, would want to do that. Do you have any thoughts on the matter before we move on? The topic is an is an interesting one. I think they they handled it well in in the movie, very very well, because it was baked into the story. Diversity has been something that's been baked into Power Rangers from the beginning, and we talked about this off air. It resembled for what a lot of people in America experience. Now, granted, there's a lot of people in America who who don't experience that much right. diversity. This movie was even more diverse than the show because it also, it, like, not only did it have less, like, less white people. Sorry, when we mentioned Naomi Scott, she also played Jasmine in the, the Aladdin movie. Right. I was just curious because I remembered around the time I looked up what her descentage was and she is also she's of english and indian descent mm-hmm. indian jujarati which i know i butchered but <laughs> like i was curious about her descent because at the time it was like well if they just like if aladdin if they had just casted a standard white person like the internet would have lost his mind but she wasn't so it was like not only that you have a lot of nationalities here but mm-hmm. more so than the show they were also embracing other differences, sexuality, mental health facets, and economic differences, and mm-hmm. so many different things that's organically there. I grew up in Toronto, which is a very multicultural city. So I'm like, yeah, no, this looks like my friend group at the time. It being organically there is great. I love that they did it well in the movie where it was these were aspects of the characters, but not the be all end all. Right. I think. The wider thing, and it's something that's getting better at, but for a long time, a lot of groups were so underserviced that it being there became the be all end all because it's like, hey, this is the only thing we're getting. So Mm -hmm. this has to be this has to be done. Well, I love that that wasn't the case in this movie. Right. So going off, I'm looking at my notes here, going off of a point from one of the authors that I looked at, which by the way, full disclosure, and I'll have references 
for you to read these articles in their entirety for anyone who's interested in the show notes. But I sourced these particular authors and publications for this, which was Kassira Copes, whose article appeared in Medium and BLK Inc. or Black Inc. I think it's supposed to be Black Inc. Catherine Dew from Big Straw Magazine. Nicole Huang from the McGill Daily and Chris Gore from Film Threat. He did a YouTube video on this. He was being interviewed. And one of the points that I got out of this is, and which is the question I was going to pose to you is like, do you think there is such a thing as quote unquote unproblematic content that has good representation on all counts? Because that's a big topic of discussion with this. I'll on a surface say yes. Mm. I think problematic is, on one hand, you could argue it's an annoying buzzword term. On the other hand, it does actually represent a lot of things, but I think problematic is in the eye of the beholder. Mm. And you can use that in a way where I can be like, well, this isn't problematic to me. And someone and someone could rightfully be like, yeah, but it should be. But on the other hand, you can have people finding problems where there were some that weren't intended Mm -hmm. there are people with diverse opinions in every group will be like that was problematic and someone within the same group will be like how Mm -hmm. so i don't i I, problematic is one where i'm like it's loaded in different ways but Mm -hmm. i'd be like i want to find out individualistically like okay but what's what's your issue with this Mm -hmm. because i can find something where i'd be like there's nothing wrong with this on the surface. Mm-hmm. Even if I take empathy into account into everything where mm-hmm. I'd be like, what, what's actually, what's the issue here? Right. And, and I think that was one of the main points that this particular author was making with presenting that. And that is the trouble that you run into is you start treating certain groups of people, you know, the ones you're trying to represent, you treat them monolithically. And because the experiences that people in those groups have are going to be different even within those groups that you might have one that sees a character who's supposed to be representing a particular group and they'll still say that's not my experience that's not me and i think that's one of the things that makes it difficult because there will be there might be this is one of my own observations you might see someone who says i'm going to uh, make this character representative of this group by using these and they might use some you might say broad cultural strokes for that particular character, which might upset some people because they say you're playing to cliches and stereotypes. But then if you decide, okay, fine, I'll take this character and not embrace that quite as much, then some of the same people might be upset that you don't have more of the culture represented in that character, which that's why it's, it feels like a lose-lose either way. It can, but I'd also say like, Okay, an example, if I'm looking at, heck, heck, let's use two examples from Power Rangers. Mm -hmm. Trini being bisexual, I don't think there was anything problematic with how that aspect of her character was presented. No, I agree with you. Tommy, in the OG show, the grab bag of random pop culture native aspects of his character. Right which they you could argue slapped on that would have been problematic now was it intended harshly or rudely or or meanly i don't think so at all no but if someone was like that was problematic i'd be like you know what yeah i agree with you yeah i think i think with og tommy i don't think it was 
meant to be racist. I, but I, I think it was based, like you said, more in pop cultural perceptions as opposed to them actually doing some research to understand how do these cultures work now uh, give credit give credit where credit is due they did actually have native american actors you know when they were introducing that aspect of his heritage even the character the actor i think who played chakotay in in mm-hmm. voyager had issue with how they portrayed him like uh, just the grab bag native american stereotype natures Mm -hmm. that they applied with him where it was like hey a native american first officer like yes that makes sense in star trek but they didn't do enough with it where they it was there they didn't organically add it and develop it Mm -hmm. and that's where it can be the double-edged sword where representation it's like yes People want it and it's good, but it also has, if it's organically there, then it makes more sense. If, if you're right, not everybody's going to have the same experiences, but it has to ring as authentic and true to someone. Right. For sure. And, and the other thing that this is the other hurdle that I think you have, that you run into is the changing of sensibilities sometimes very quickly. Even in just a few short years, something that, you know, five years ago might have been seen as, oh, that's good representation might subtly be considered not good representation. Or, you know, certainly things that we saw several decades ago, people don't see as good representation, even though at the time it was seen as such. So that's the other challenge that you run into. It's tricky. And then the the thing is, like, now, I think it's fair to say you and I haven't had this issue that many others have just because, like, both of us are white men. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that hard to find characters to identify with for us. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, that hasn't been the case be any minority group it would be like hey your character is a sassy clap backy like over effeminate gay character or a very one-dimensional black character for a long time like that's it so that's what everybody else looks at and it's like no i want the fully developed organic character that mm-hmm. that you and i have been getting forever so that's where I understand the importance that other people have. For us, it's it's like a given. It's something that's been getting a lot better. We're now we're we're getting to that point, but for a long time it was just like one archetype and th- and that's kind of it. And we were like, yeah, but it's been, it's like it's been there and it might be like, hey, that sassy over effeminate gay character was always presented in a good way, but that's not who everybody in that community is that's not how everyone in that community acts and that can still be a negative stereotype right right i totally understand that and that i'm trying to decide if this is the next point i want to go to but i'm so but i'm reminding myself i don't have to do this in order of my notes so i think what you're bringing up is a legitimate point to bring up but let me offer a little bit of a counter argument there And I will begin by just posing a question, because this is something that one of the other sources I looked at brought up. Does a character in a story have to look like someone, like you as the audience? Does Does the character have to look like you in order for you to identify with the character and be empathetic toward the character? 
I think that's a complicated question. Mm. The reason I say that is on the surface, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Like, but I've actually talked to other people in different, like who are in different communities who mm-hmm. like, I've even, even said that it's like, but yeah, I can identify with, like, I can gravitate towards black Panther and identify with him because of his good virtues. But if you're in a group of people who have been downtrodden, browbeaten, treated terribly by another group of people who historically, you could say, predominantly white people, they're not going to latch on to a character the same way as they would as someone who has all these good virtues and looks like them and has similar life experiences to them. Mm -hmm. The aspect of them looking like them, I think, does play a huge part and it it shouldn't be dismissed. I'm not not saying it should be dismissed at all. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I know you're not like and I know this isn't coming from you, but I've seen bad faith YouTube sections or Internet pockets or in general people be like, well, no, you should always just identify with this part. It's like, but you've never had that. Like you actually haven't had the experiences where some it's valid is -hmm. what I'm saying, where someone's like, hey, yeah, I can I might like Superman. But I might identify more with Black Lightning, like Mm -hmm. not me personally, but someone else. It's like because there's these virtues and that it's someone from my community. That's not a thing that I have ever necessarily had. Right. As a as a white man to, to have that issue. Right. The reason I pose that is this was something that Chris Gore talked about where because someone asked him about this in an interview. And he responded by saying, I spend all day with myself. I don't want a story about me. (laughs) (laughs) And he, the crux of his argument was basically we all, regardless of our identities should partake of stories that aren't about us so that we can diversify our understandings of people. And he did say, I think people should see themselves in the protagonist. But he said that the problem is that people confuse that with making the protagonist look like them. The example that he gave was that he said, when I was a kid, I watched Aliens and I loved Ellen Ripley, even though clearly I, as a male child, don't know what it's like to be an adult woman. But I was behind her. I was with her the whole time. And I think that that is something to be said. You know, I can read or watch, for that matter, say The Hunger Games in which the protagonist is a teenage girl and I'm getting behind her because there are still things that I can latch onto that I understand, even though I myself am not a teenage girl. Yeah. I think it would should, and it's not anything you're saying. It's not at all. So I want to make that clear to you and whoever's listening. It's the tricky spot is people can use that attitude to explain, like to disavow everything else where then there's, Groups of people who Black Panther is going to hit with other people in different ways because it's made more for them. And I think that's fine. I don't think there's any problem with that. I'd encourage more of that. Mm-hmm. Not everything has to be for everybody. Right. Every Should everybody hopefully be able to enjoy it? Yeah. But not. At, but I think there should be and can be more stories that cater to 
certain audiences and demographics more. I think that would be great. And if there's more in if it can be made enjoyable and accessible. So yeah, me as a 30, 35 year old white guy being able to identify with something from like Katniss. Sure. That's great. But the teenage girl should be able to right. enjoy it and cling to it more than I can. Well, I, I totally understand that. And yeah. one of the things that I found interesting watching that interview is he used Godzilla as an example for what he was talking about, <laughs> which is fascinating. He talked about Godzilla's revenge AKA all monsters attack. He yeah. said when he watched that movie as a kid, he connected with Achiro, the kid in that movie, because he yeah. was a fellow kid, despite the fact that Achiro is Japanese and he is not Japanese. But yeah. by doing that, he was able to experience a bit of Japanese culture. And he says, fiction gives the audience a chance to see the world through someone else's eyes, which I do think is why. For someone who is, say, in the majority in a particular culture. In North America, it's white people. I do think seeing something like Black Panther is good for them because it allows them to see the world through a different set of eyes, experience a different culture. Obviously, Wakanda is not real, <laughs> but <laughs> it's based in a lot of things that are true. And that's why I say I, I think that that's the opportunity that all of us, regardless of what we look like and all of those other identity markers, all of us owe it to ourselves to diversify like that. I think it actually encourages more empathy. And I think we can both agree the world needs a little bit more empathy. <laughs> a thousand percent. Weirdly, I, I, like it's off Power Rangers, but a recent Marvel movie that I think did this really well, even better than the character's solo run, or at least her, the character's original solo run, the character of America Chavez in Doctor Strange. In, yeah. Multiverse like, of Madness. I think, yeah. I think they handled that character's like history with the having two mothers and being, I believe the character, I'm not sure if the character is bisexual or a straight up lesbian, but, or homosexual, whatever the term is. And I mean to offend no one, mm -hmm. like they handled it really, really well in the movie where it was like, no, that's there. And that's part of the character and that's the norm. And that's, it's a facet. Whereas the, the, I believe the character's first solo run, it was like, no, we're going to make the soapboxy. That's where, like, where it's off putting and then disengaging and alienating. Where there's a fine line with having it and featuring it well. I think you can have any character of any. Should any character of any group should can and should be featured? I still think they can and should be fallible. I understand the hesitancy because in the past it might be like, well, no, the only time we ever got these characters were when they were the butt of the joke or they were the villain or that. So mm -hmm. I understand the hesitancy, but you can still have them be there and be fallible, right? Yeah, and I think that there are some points where I think. There are filmmakers that get, particularly in big commercial ventures, I do think they get a little needlessly nervous about it. Like, I, I swear I read something somewhere about how when the Aquaman movie was made and the decision was made to make one of the villains Black Manta, who was a black guy. There was some nervousness about that because they're like, why? It was like, are we, do we, are we sure we want the black guy to be the villain? And I'm like, I don't see a problem with that because regardless of what you look like, we're all 
as fallible and capable of evil as anybody else. <laughs> and it, it speaks to a wider thing because then the like the benefit of it at the time is I think now, especially we're anybody would be like, why would that be a problem? Because the actor was great for it. But if it was coming out, it'd be different if it was coming out at a time where the only roles black actors were getting were right. villainous roles or gangster roles or as insert stereotype here. Right. It'd be different. We're, we're at the better spot now where where for some sure there's still like as much as people try to differentiate it, like racial trauma still exists generationally. So for some, they're like, no, I get why there'd be some hesitancy because for some it's like, no, I'm still treated as the bad guy mm -hmm. or I'm still having all that experience where in my entertainment, I might only want to see someone who looks like me as the good guy. I can understand mm -hmm. that, but I think that the movie did well enough with it where he wasn't the only black person in the movie either. And they had done up well enough with everybody else being diverse, where it was this character who happens to be this skin color is one of the bad guys, but he was well done. Right. And that casting was awesome. Right. Right. And I think at which point I, and this was a point that one of my sources actually brought up and I, to a certain extent, I agree with it. And that is one of the solutions potentially to this is not so much making sure that every story checks every box so much as just making more stories so that everyone has a chance to find something that satisfies them. I'd agree with that. That's something I'm hoping to see more of. It's been interesting talking to other people to get their perspectives on it. There are certain people where stuff that becomes controversial in North America is a non-troversy over in like in Japan, for example, where they're like, no, we love that it's happening. Like that this is being embraced in a, and a Caucasian person or an African person or whatever is rocking that. It has to do with there's been certain types of stories with certain leads and certain characteristics highlighted, sold, shown, manufactured, and shoveled out for years that the other archetypes don't. I'd love to see other story types with diverse casts and everything get shown more, get sold more, get those opportunities more, because then you're getting other storytelling. Right. If that makes sense. Oh, no, it makes sense. And I think for me and for a lot of people, the problem that we run into is it's not that we're against diversity or representation. It's that a lot of times this has been happening way too much for probably about five or six years now, particularly in Hollywood is Diversity is used, I think, as a distraction, as a disguise to say, hey, look, we made the minimal effort to have diversity. And then if someone criticizes that story as not being a good story, then they use the diversity aspect as an excuse to say, oh, you just don't like it because you're a bigot. And that upsets a lot of people because then they almost feel afraid to say anything because if they say, well, such and such was a bad story. If I say that, then everyone's going to make horrible accusations about me. There's a catch 22 with that. Like there definitely is there, there is circumstances where that's the case. But oh yeah. Then there's other, 
there's other times where like for example i was watching a um i can't i wish i remembered the channel but it was someone who was looking at say the front the ghostbusters franchise mm-hmm. now I'm not going to go to bat for the the 2014 Ghostbusters movie. Uh, 2016. But, <laughs> it's 2016. But they did look at some of the treatment that the cast and the people did get before that criticism got leveled out, where it was like, if you're hating on this movie, you might be sexist. Like, that became a joke around the time of the movie. And there were people who did say that genuinely where it's like if you don't like this movie it's because you're sexist and that's stupid but let's not kid ourselves there was actual horrendous chauvinistic sexist treatment oh no no i i i I, I don't on the cast and that's where there's the catch 22 with right where that overreaction is informed by something and it's not coming out like hey this is our defense like something led to that coming out it doesn't right, mean right. it's okay, but it was informed by something. Right. And I, I, I am not at all saying that there are instances oh, yeah. where that is true, but it's the tactic that is used now. And it upsets me because I almost feel like in, it kind of makes the representation and the diversity less genuine. It's almost like you're not doing it because this is something that you believe in and it's part of the story that you want to tell you're using it as a shield. So then if someone says, I don't like your movie, your book or your video game, whatever it is, your media, then you can just weaponize it and point at them, whether it's true or not. That's what upsets a lot of people. And I I think, and I think think that's very disingenuous. Like you shouldn't reduce something as good as representation and diversity to that. I think that's fair. I think an example could be, again, I'll, poke out the america chavez solo run mm-hmm. like that was it was a bad comic it was just badly written mm-hmm. the art wasn't that good it was poorly paced and it was poorly written the author has done other things and done them better at the time you had people trolling the internet then you like using america chavez to label other characters who at the time there was more of a diverse per push within marvel but i'm like you can't look at that solo mayor chavez run and apply that to kamala khan or apply that to miles morales or any number of other more organically well-written characters mm-hmm. but that was also the tricky part was it was almost an over defense because people were going at the the writer and the character because of their race so it's almost it gets hard to in any one spot be like hey <laughs> like it's not this but this especially if you're getting overwhelming a lot of negative crap right i understand that and i and maybe sometimes people are just so overwhelmed by the criticisms that they're getting that they just they lash out in some form or another and they throw out an accusation like that because it's hard to parse things out and see where people are actually coming from. And it's also a downside of how social media and YouTube and things like that can be manufactured. It's mm-hmm. a downside of the algorithm stuff. They It very well could be the only criticism that they are actively seeing that they're receiving. They might not, because of algorithmic dictations they might not be seeing the other stuff where it's someone saying like 
I have no issue with this. My issue is the writing. It might not be that. It might be the only thing that's algorithmically showing up is the race bait, the race bait, clickbaity, right. outrage inducing right, stuff. Right. And if that's the only thing they're seeing, I can understand why it's uh, that's the catch all. Right. They might not active. Like you and I have off air had conversations where it's like some of the some of the criticisms we might receive or see is only like the the bad faith outragey stuff, mm-hmm. and then it might you might not actually see the constructive side. So it 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 is difficult. What I'd love to see somehow is that stuff be showing up less, so you can actually right. see the good uh, like the good stuff. Right. And I do think more constructive. Right. And I do think some of the things that you're seeing and both of us have hinted at it. We've talked about outrage peddlers and there's outrage peddlers on every side of the aisle, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the issues that people run into is that everyone is, well, not everyone, but a lot of pockets, we'll say, of people have been trained to respond to something in a knee jerk fashion one way or the other. So if they see some new film project or television project that gets announced and there's a diverse cast, there's going to be contingents of the internet who are just going to immediately assume this will be the best thing ever because diversity. And then other people who respond by saying, this is going to be the worst thing ever because they're pushing an agenda with the diversity, whatever it might be. It's knee jerk reactions without actually taking time to look into it. And maybe you only have to look into it a little bit to kind of, to figure out which way it's going to go. Or maybe you have to do more research to find out about it to see if it's going to turn out well or not. But the point being, it's a, it's highly presumptive either way. I think that's the thing, be it with diversity or anything we very much go to the knee jerk reaction. Mm -hmm. There's very little of a wait and see approach especially with nerd properties for whatever reason. As soon as a character is a different race or a sexuality has changed or there's a different perspective, it's automatically like either this is going to be amazing or like this is going to be the worst. And it's like, or we could take a look and see. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times it's been done in a a poor way, a clickbaity way or a temporary boost the sales way. Mm -hmm. And then it's like it it, when that when that momentary addition stops selling, then they brush it under the rug and then you're like, okay, then it was a cash grab. But yeah, yeah. And and that's why I say I don't see I don't want to see something like this reduced like that. Like, really, you're resorting to using this as a publicity stunt. For a momentary spike in sales? No, thank you. (laughs) I I see those fig leaves and I don't like those fig leaves. Then the tricky thing is, though, that shouldn't be the go to. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't just assume it automatically. We need to wait and see if it happened, if it actually makes sense. Within the story, like an example being like Jonathan Kent. Now, I haven't read the title, Mm -hmm. but I know earlier this year and most recently they did it with Tim Drake, Mm -hmm. where they had both characters come out as bisexual. Mm -hmm. Now, the Jonathan Kent one, I think, ended up being more well received 
And people were like, oh, it's, it's going to cancel the title and all that. But the I think the title's still going and it seemed organic with the character. With Tim Drake, people got really excited. And I'm like, I'm excited that Tim's getting a new title because Tim Drake is an underserved and awesome character. I haven't read it, but everything I've seen from it, the art looks atrocious. I'm like, oh, man, this book's probably going to get canceled. Mm. <laughs> and it's. It needs to be done well, but we also need, uh, like, we need to give it a chance, which is tricky with nerds to begin with, because as much as we call for change, we also hate it because we want, uh, we want, we're like, no, we want things to grow with us. And yeah, that, yeah, and yeah. This is different from the thing we love. We're like, oh, yeah, I think the phrase you're looking for is the same, but different. What does yeah. that even mean? <laughs> yeah. But then we get upset. That it hasn't grown enough or changed enough. But then if it's too different, then we're like, and you can even say, Chris, you're this way with the movie we've been talking about for the last two, uh, like almost two and a half hours, which you know what? Fair, fair enough. I'm aware, (laughs) but it could be, there is the fine line, but it's still like, we have to be willing for things to change. Right. Right. And that's a tricky thing. It really is a tricky thing, but and I know some of the authors I looked at, I thought this was a little bit of a cynical way to put it, which is that it's like, yeah, there are all of these authors and artists or whatever tapping into diversity and representation, doing all this stuff. But they very cynically, most of them pointed out that is that actually doing anything to help these people? You know, if they are marginalized and, you know, there's actual bad things happening to them. And I'm like, well, that's, kind of a sad way to look at it but you know because i mean what do you want them to do i mean if you're an artist that's you know you use your art to do things and that doesn't necessarily mean that yeah things are going to change immediately or anything like that but i'd also push back on that to a degree of even if it doesn't immediately change the life of someone who is like that character's race sexuality diver like whatever it changes how others look at people Mm -hmm. in that community it absolutely does Mm -hmm. and that's where i'd argue representation also matters where if the only exposure people have to any group of people is as like a a negative gang member as just an over effeminate stereotype or coked out whatever Mm -hmm. like any any populace any insert if your only exposure to them is that negative way through media that does translate to how you see people outside of it. I've worked with people from all groups in my background as socials and social service work, how people are represented in media, in books, on the news in particular has a huge Mm -hmm. impact on how people view others outside of that. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think even if it doesn't change the immediate life of that person, it can have a positive impact on how others view and then interact with them. Right. I think it underestimates the reach and effect of art. Speaking as an artist mm-hmm. myself, you know, as a writer, a podcaster, mm-hmm. you know, an actor and all of these things, I think it underestimates that. And I think I do think that is one of the things these several of these authors get wrong is they seem to think that change can only happen through the you know the obvious I guess sources of power you know whether that be political or otherwise 
I think there's more that can be done and, you know, and I think it underestimates what, what artists bring to it because a lot of times that's where change starts to happen is through the arts. I was going to say it's, it should be a both and, Mm -hmm. and not an either or. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But ultimately I would say, I think this is a, a good place to end on it, unless you have some further thoughts on this, would be, as one of my sources put it, Mr. Uh, no, uh, Miss Huang, I should say, quote, we must engage critically with everything that we choose to consume, end quote. I, I think you know that is something definitely that we can walk away from with this. Oh, a thousand percent. I'd close with, I think we should all challenge ourselves and speak to others from outside of our identity pools, for lack of mm-hmm. another term. Oh, yeah. Just uh, uh, like just uh, empathy goes a long way. Understanding goes a huge way. And to pull it back to this movie, I think this movie, it's one of the best examples of diversity in a film. And it really captured that spirit from the show. If it captured, that's the thing that captured the best from the show. And you could argue as Power Rangers at its best or one of its intents at its best and the the movie nailed it oh yeah for sure for sure well that was a wonderful conversation thank you for doing that with me chris no problem man the radio arcade has been on its temporary hiatus for a while so it was nice to dive into that shout out to my boy christian Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, as we start to wrap things up here, I did want to share a little bit of listener feedback. My friend, Neil Reby, who's been on the show before, who left a very involved, very letter-like comment on one of the YouTube versions of one of our previous episodes, specifically episode 69 on Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Wanted to share this really quick with everyone. He wrote, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster is one of my favorite giant monster movies because it establishes a fantasy world where kaiju are part of day-to-day life. The scene where Mothra's twin fairies make a guest appearance on TV as celebrities hammers home that point, although I think Sekizawa, the screenwriter, was toying around with the fairies because the actresses who portrayed them, Emi and Yumi Ito, were celebrities in real life. In any case, I wasn't aware of that when I saw the movie when I was a kid. What I saw was a movie that not only accepted its fantasy elements as part of life, but celebrated them rather than trying to destroy them. Most other giant monster movies eradicated their monsters to get the world, quote-unquote, back to normal. As a youngster, which world would you immerse yourself in? The world of Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, where Godzilla and Rodan end the movie as heroes, or The Beast of 20,000 Fathoms, where the movie ends with a dead retosaurus and a burning roller coaster in the background? Another reason why I love this movie is that it gave the kaiju distinct personalities and goals. I had seen the movies Godzilla and Rodan prior to seeing Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Those movies established the monsters of Godzilla and Rodan as unrelenting engines of destruction. So by the time I saw Ghidorah, seeing Godzilla and Rodan rescue Mothra was a jaw-dropping plot twist. Plus, I loved Godzilla and Rodan, and because of that, I never bought into the idea that they were as evil as their signature films made them out to be. That scene vindicated what I believed. 
Some fans view the monster behavior in Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, as a downward trend in kaiju movies because of the humor that was incorporated into action and so forth. I disagree. I see it as character development. A giant monster series is not going to survive if all the monster does is step on things and serve as a metaphor for social commentary. You can start there, but you need to move on. Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, I should say, I've been misreading that. He keeps putting Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster. <laughs> My apologies. I'm, sure, I'm surprised Jimmy hasn't yelled at me about it. Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster has been the primary influence on my writing. The kaiju in my novels have their own distinct personalities and goals. They are not just a menace that roars in anger and smashes things. As Nate from the Monster Island Film Vault will be able to testify once he has an opportunity to read my books. That is true. I don't know why he's referring to me in third person in this comment, but <laughs> that's, that it's, was a it's little for odd. The benefit of, it's, it's, it's probably for the benefit for others. Probably. Uh, reading the review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, it probably is. But he makes a lot of really good points that Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster is a turning point in the franchise for a lot of reasons and there is, i do think there's some metatextual stuff going on in there but that's because shinichi sekizawa was a genius and more people need to talk about him <laughs> screenwriters are important people <laughs> true story true story uh any thoughts on that no I think that's like a really cool observation. It briefly took me down a rabbit hole of remembering that canceled Gamera movie where they had that offensively bad Ghidorah knockoff. Oh my god. Two headed silver dragon. And that <laughs> made me think of not Goldar here. So I was just like, all right, nope, curb your rage, curb your rage, focus on this. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> which uh listener if you haven't heard nathan was a guest on my show yep. a couple times we've done unmade godzilla movies and then we that did took unmade, two episodes <laughs> that took two episodes we did unmade gamera movies and we will at some point be uniting again to do unmade king kong movies not to segue into plugs for mine just just say yeah yeah just uh, yeah just but yeah but you know, shout out to john lemay he's the reason i know about all of these things because John <laughs> is a godsend to this fandom who finds things that nobody else knows about in the English speaking world. <laughs> to tie it back to the review, I think the person brought up a lot of interesting points and it was diggity dope. That's right. I said diggity dope. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well now Chris, for the first time ever, you get to participate in a very exciting segment on the show, the Patreon shoutouts. Go show Travis Alexander. Danny Damana. Eli Harris. Bex from Redeemed Otaku. Me. <laughs> David Noise! Make some noise! The Cellcast! Eric Anderson! Higgity Ted Williams! Winja the Ninja! The Batman himself, Brad Bruce Wayne Edelman! Tofu Fury! Oh. <laughs> oh, 
I'm about to Dragon Ball Z all over the place. I was, I was going to say, if anybody has watched any old All Japan Pro Wrestling, <laughs> whenever someone would hit their finisher, the Japanese announcers would go nuts. <laughs> no. <laughs> the Tofu Fury sounds like a finishing move. It does. It does. I'd, I'd expect it to show up in Noah or New Japan any day now. <laughs> and you would know... Because I would, because <laughs> well, no, I, I'm not going to transition to shameless self promotion just yet because I just realized <laughs> I have to plug the next couple of episodes. Then we'll give you a chance to talk about why you would know that. So that's fair. We're getting back the episode after this. We are getting back to Godzilla Redux. We took a little break with a Patreon episode, and we're going to be talking about Ebera Horror of the Deep, aka Godzilla versus the Sea Monster, and. I used to have a definitive guest in mind, but I got a request from someone else to be on it. So I'm going to do some wheeling and dealing, some negotiating to try to finalize that a little bit, but it will either be my friends, Joe and Joy Matter, or it will be Brendan Morley from the Autistic Lizard podcast. He requested to be on it. I'm going to see, maybe it'll be all three of them. I don't know. We'll see what happens there. Full disclosure. I, I, for some reason, for a split second, thought you were going to say Brendan Fraser, and then I was so disappointed that you didn't. <laughs> I got hey, really if, happy, Brendan Fraser, if you're really sad, uh, Brendan Fra- one second, <laughs> Brendan Fraser, if you're listening and you're a kaiju fan, call me anyway. <laughs> and then we're getting back to Amerikaiju <laughs> with its penultimate episode. Its penultimate episode, Chris. And we're going to be talking, speaking of wrestling, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Rampage, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand how that's not officially the name in the credits at all times. <laughs> he used to go by that. I'm just... <laughs> the and, Rock! And, like, he, he's always The Rock. Like, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, he's always he going to be The Rock! His name. His, his name could legally be his first name legally could be the and everybody would just be like, yes, yeah, the rock. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Mr. T did that. He had his name legally changed to Mr. T, which means his wife is technically legally. This is Mr. T. Mr. T. I mean, that's something you'd expect it to be. Like when you're a kid and you're speaking to like your best friend's mom, and it's like, this is Mr. Nathan's mom. <laughs> My mother's name is Tina, by the way. Oh, well, I'm sure, I'm sure Tina's a lovely lady. Uh, yes. <laughs> Do not speak ill of my mother. I, I wasn't. There, there was I, I'm kidding, dude. I'm giving you a hard time. There was time. another a mom joke here. <laughs> I'm giving you there a hard time. Now. It's just what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and speak. But speaking of Rampage, which is based on a video game, so naturally, I have to have my friend Alex McCumbers, who is a gaming journalist and the host of the Forever Classic Games podcast, on about nice. that one. Because nice. of course you do. <laughs> now. We come to shameless self-promotion. <laughs> so tell the lovely kaiju lovers how you know so much about professional wrestling. 
it's because I watch a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) So I, as Nathan mentioned at the beginning, I am the host of three different shows. One Cross Radio, which is my longest running podcast. The Radio Arcade, which I co-host with my my boo, Christian. Shout out to Christian. And then my most recent show, Power Bombs and Pile Drivers, a wrestling appreciation podcast. I have been a lifelong wrestling fan, and it's just something that's fun to talk about, much like kaiju movies and toku shows or toku-inspired movies. And like with many things, the Japanese wrestling is also awesome, and it has a great spot in my heart. If you want to check it out, you can find us currently through Spotify and Redbubble. We are getting to work on showing up in the Apple side of things on that algorithm. We just recorded an episode with my buddy Stereo Mike about Stone Cold Steve Austin, who always brings And that's the bottom line! Because still, oh man, so many fun memories. I could have finished the line, but now I want to watch Stone Cold Hunt DX some more. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there we go. (laughs) Oh, okay, well. (laughs) yeah so you basically you have a lot of things for everyone to listen and i'm sure there's plenty of overlap and i know you're gonna have me on some more one cross radio i don't uh i don't know about the other two shows quite yet but i wouldn't be opposed yeah no well that's the we're still uh, radio arcade is still on a temporary hiatus but christian and i are trying to rejig things and figure things out going forward we did a bit of an audio reboot just because at points both of us were like hey we're becoming a little bit too angry about things it's becoming a little bit too much old man yells at cloud if you get that simpsons reference (laughs) we want to we want to have it be more discussion-based I'm always down for guests to talk about wrestling because it's silly and fun. And you've had me on Henshin Men, now on here. I've been on Power Trip. I'd love to go back on Power Trip and Henshin Men. Hopefully next time it won't be something so super infuriating. I couldn't pun there. Uh (laughs) (laughs) We can make it happen, sir. We can make it happen. All right. You'd be welcome. You'd be welcome, my good man. All right. I'd love to come on. I really would. Anyway, with that, yo, Jimmy. Yes. Were you taking a nap there? No, you can't nap on the job. Gee whiz, man. Oh, you were thinking about somebody. Oh, I know who that somebody is, too. Tommy Tanaya? Yeah. (laughs) Almost. Anyway. (laughs) Jimmy. What's going on? Kaiju attack? Who is it this time? They don't know. Ugh, not again. What do we do, Nate? We go to the shelters. Like in Pacific Rim? Exactly. Jimmy, hit the credits and free up the airtime for emergency reports from Captain Gordon. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault. And on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive 
Live Edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production. Sayonara! Nate Marchand, Personal Journal. Today was absolutely insane. Where do I even start? <sighs> okay, okay, all right. After Chris, Jimmy, and I evacuated from KIJU after the kaiju attack alarms started blaring, Jimmy said he was going to his garage to, quote-unquote, check on things. He gave me a knowing look when he said it. <sighs> his new girlfriend. The one I ratted out this morning. <sighs> we had no time to argue, so I let him go. Meanwhile, Chris and I scrambled to find a shelter with enough room for us. Seriously, dude, I thought you guys had security measures against kaiju attacks. We do for the ones on the island, so this must be another outside monster. What do you mean, another? One heck of an ugly mother wrecked the beach a couple months ago. And honestly, I don't buy Winner's official statement that it was some unknown mutant. What are you saying? Two words, failed experiment. Then who? Suddenly a geyser of hot golden liquid burst from the nearby ground and formed into a vaguely humanoid shape with devil horns and angel wings. As weird as that sounds. Godzilla, help us. It's not Goldar. Ugh. The creature formed a liquidous sword in his hand and struck the ground with it. As he did, giant stones rained down like sweat from his undulating body, splattering in hot heaps on impact. These steaming piles slowly formed into malformed rock-like humanoids and lashed out in a frenzy, muttering like mad apes. These were afterward named Drosslings by the island scientists. A half-dozen charged at me and Chris. Chris, come on! Get to the shelter! Right behind you. But just our luck, the shelter door slammed shut just as we got to it. Chris and I turned around to face the Drosslings. Well, at least I can say I was stoned when I died. But um, Tish? I love you, man. I know. Hey! We and the Drosslings looked into the direction of the voice. But I love her more! There stood Carone, her long blonde hair flowing in the wind, hands on her hips. She wore a black leather tank top, pants, and boots. I saw a sword hilt on her belt and a transmorpher on her wrist. She scowled at the Drosslings with fiery eyes. You can't fight here. It isn't a quarry. The Drosslings charged at Carone like a pack of stony linebackers. Carone held up her left arm and tapped a button on her transmorpher. Go Galactic! She transformed in a lightning flash. 
Now she wore purple armor with a silver breastplate bearing a chevron. Her helmet was emblazoned with the head of a bird of prey. She was a Power Ranger. She drew her Quasar Saber and posed combatively. Time for a little stone cutting. The throne hacked and clashed her way through the golems. To kill a particularly stubborn one, her saber burned with purple flames, letting it slice through the creature like a hot knife. With three left, one of the drosslings tackled her. She flew ten feet back, dropping her saber. As the remaining stone monsters closed in, she stood tall and raised her hand up high. Fury Staff! A polearm with a spade-shaped blade appeared in her hand in a flash of purple light. She slashed one drosseling across the chest, stopping him dead, stabbed another, and then threw the staff like a spear at the last one, impaling it. She casually pulled the weapon out of the dead golem as she strutted toward me and Chris. Hey, uh, Nate? Is, uh, something wrong there with your, uh, with your jaw? Looks a little slack. Huh? And you might want to stop staring before she gets here. Oh, uh, uh, right, 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 right. Where's Jimmy? He went to... As if in response, a Canacon Mark II flew overhead and landed with a thunderous crash. Good. He brought his robot con. Strato and I will need to help if we're going to kill this creature spawning golems. Strato? You mean... A giant purple mecha eagle flew overhead and landed next to Mechanicong Mark II, transforming into a humanoid warrior. The Stratoforce Megazord lives again! Dope! Let's get you two someplace safe. She wrapped an arm around each of us. Hey, what are you- Her ah! own leaped into the air like a frog on steroids. It was like racing up a roller coaster hill. For a hot second, I could see the entire Monsterland Resort. But a few harrowing seconds later, the three of us landed on top of Mechanicong 2's head. Dope! I, uh, I... I what just happened? Your head might literally be in the clouds, Nate. Get inside and help Jimmy pilot this thing. We have a Goldar imposter to destroy. Yeah! Throne super jumped to the Stratoforce Megazord and disappeared into its head. Chris and I found a hatch and crawled inside the Robotcong. We found Jimmy in its high-tech cockpit, wearing a helmet. Both Chris and I put one on and pulled the mics down to our mouths. I have Jimmy, your helmet mic must have the same faulty parts as your radio mic because all I heard was droid chatter. Oh, me too! Activate your helmet's transcriber mode. Thanks, homie. I'll monitor MK2 systems at the engineering console. Chris, you think you can handle the tactical station? Well, brah, you bet. It's just point and shoot. I've played enough video games to know how to do that. Plus, I hate Knockoldar so much that the game of rage should kick in and make me just a crack shot. That's how it works, right? Why are you gesticulating like an Italian high on Red Bull? Man, I love the whoosh noises. Sure, but I think you just cussed a blue streak in Jet Jaguar speak. Well, sh- Not Goldar threw an automated Mazer tank at MK2, which exploded on impact. What he said! Got it. Jimmy, you gonna play some Wu-Tang for us? 
Appropriate? Ah, even better. I'm taking port. On the theater-like view screen, we saw Strato charge at Not Goldar, slashing at the monster with its huge sword-like boomerang. Who needs satellites? Not Goldar retaliated by swinging its sword. Mecha and Kaiju traded blows. Jimmy maneuvered MK2 into striking distance. Yeah. Weapons does this have? Let's try... I don't know, this one? The words, high beams activated, appeared on the view screen as Not Golar's back glistened a bit. Whoops. Not all the glitters is Goldar. This is a bad time for a joke, boys. Alright, let's try the button next to it. MK2's eye lasers fired. The red beams hit not Goldar in the back as it front kicked Strato away. No! Not Goldar turned around and seemed to glare at us with non-existent eyes inside its hollow helmet. Uh-oh, I think you made him mad. Dude, how can you tell? He has no face! Not Goldar charged at us. Chris, do something! Do what? Anything! Fire everything! Radar showed missile launchers appearing from MK2's shoulders and its left arm transforming into a giant submachine gun. A flurry of lasers, bullets, and missiles flew at Not Goldar as Jimmy made the Mecha Ape straight. The monster covered itself with its tattered wings. The lasers did nothing and all the projectiles melted and exploded on impact. Jimmy, keep us out of his reach! What do we do now? Scanners are detecting a powerful energy signature inside Not Goldar. When Rita Repulsa created him, she held him together with her preternatural powers. The Rangers killed him by stabbing him in the chest. There's something inside Not Goldar keeping him alive. If we can remove it, he'll melt faster than a crayon under a heat lamp. Does that mean we gotta get close? I didn't say it was a perfect plan. What just happened? Golden Boy stabbed us! No kidding, Captain Obvious! Not Golar's empty face filled our view screen. He pulled back his fist and formed it into a huge maze. Death by the lame clone of a classic villain. This is the worst way to go. I have Jimmy frantically tapped buttons and MK2's hands rose to intercept the mace. The Mega's gears groaned thunderously under the strain. Heaven is for heroes, right? Have we even done anything heroic yet? Yeah, well, I bet it has plenty of Canadian bacon. Look, if it's what y'all call Canadian bacon, that's hell. <laughs> Suddenly, not Goldar melted, revealing the face of Strato. In its hand was a large sphere covered in golden liquid. Yeah, I got to the heart of the matter. Strato crushed the sphere in his hand and dropped the pieces, forming a golden puddle at our mecha's feet. Uh, thanks a bullion? The gold mace would have hurt less. A bit later, we parked the mechas in Jimmy's garage. MK2 looked like a half-melted action figure. Strato stood almost motionless in his phoenix form, watching over us, if you'll pardon the pun, like a hawk. Carone, Chris, Jimmy, and I stood at the Galactabee's feet. The Pink Ranger removed her helmet. I... 
couldn't keep my eyes off Caron's magically perfect blonde hair. Well, I wasn't expecting the end of my pilgrimage to be this exciting. Man, I wasn't expecting my life to be this exciting. Right, Nate? Nate? Bruh, stop staring! Oh, I, um... The fight burned off my caffeine. I was just tired, is all. Right, it's better. Black leather or purple spandex? (laughs) I'll have you know... It's not spandex. Oh! You've heard that one before, huh? I'm friends with Dr. K. She's the best. She is, but like I was saying, Monster Island is the last stop on the journey the KO-35 monks sent me on. I had to come here to wrestle with what I did as Miss Perkins. She... I wasn't as evil as astronomer when I was her, but I still need to overcome the shame of succumbing to the board's influence. I told you everything is forgiven. Well, at least on my part. Of course it is. Are you done? You still crushing? That's enough, boys. Nate, I know there are no hard feelings because, (laughs) well, I've heard your podcast. (laughs) But there are still some people here I need to talk to. Your sister. Pseudo-sister. That poor girl puts up with so much from you. Anyway, I'll need a few days to do that and relax. I told my brother Andros and his wife Ashley I'd be here, so they'll stop by to finish the vacation we started before I disappeared. Oh, that's cool. I've wanted to meet them both for a while. I also have a few people to thank for helping me, like Reverend Mifun. Are you... maybe... gonna stay? (laughs) What? I was going to try to get her rehired to her old job. The one she had while being manipulated by supervillains? Rude. (laughs) I know you mean well and that you're overworked, Nate. But now that I'm a ranger again, I'm needed elsewhere. The galaxy still has evil to fight. So once I talk to everyone and check them off my list, Strato and I will be leaving. Oh. Well... I understand. Plus, I hear Zane is still gallivanting through the universe as a ranger. Maybe we'll run into each other. Right. Maybe my brother knows where he is. Probably. Anyway, Jimmy, take care of Strato while I'm here. He'll need let out to find food at least twice a day. But he should be easy to take care of otherwise. Jimmy gave her a thumbs up. I'll see you later. Bruh, you need a girlfriend. Ugh, don't remind me, Canadian bacon. Listen, son, we're about to throw down. You know what? Fine. Meet me at my apartment and we'll settle this like nerds. Backstreet Brawler 5. It's on like Donkey Kong now, dude. End journal entry.